Welcome to the Paranormies. I'm Johnny Monoxide, and tonight it's just me and Grogback. What up, dude? Hello, hello. Oh, man, I'm excited. You excited? Yes. I was excited all weekend. All week. Yes. Everybody else canceled, uh, and so it's just Grogback and I. But we have an interview with one Mr. Jason Brashears of Archaics. Uh, love him or hate him. He is a absolute vault treasure trove of knowledge and information, uh, accessible almost like a flash drive. But uh, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna into that. But before that, um, yeah, we're gonna ask him some paranormies questions this time. Oh yeah, definitely. And we're yeah, we're, we're gonna have a little little interview with Jason. You know what? Let's just get into it. Whether you're cognizant of what's happening or not. Absolutely, dude. Jason, um, I sent you an email a while back. Um, it was a story about a tornado that I went through up here in Massachusetts, which is really rare. It is rare. The last one we had, I think, was in 52. And uh, this one took my house out with me, my wife, and my two kids inside it. And just like you were saying, with you know, if you were meant to go through Phoenix unharmed, we it was like we literally had a bubble of like a safety sphere around us. And we came through it with nothing but a scratch on us, no broken bones. It was just like you, what you would be talking about with the Phoenix event. Oh man. Grognag, let me tell you, it's you, even on, even on a smaller scale, just little incidents in prison where I just, I was standing there, just totally objectively observing the, the phenomena around me. And it was so weird how I was just untouched over and over and over. But anytime I invested even a modicum of some type of emotional uh, attachment to what was going on around me, if I if I if I tried to polarize, like take sides, all of a sudden I'd be swept up, swept up into the current of events and I would be a participant. It was crazy. Huh. That is a very familiar story, man. I've had many times in my life where a lot of bad things are going on around me. And I was just not, not oblivious to it, but I'm just observing and nothing's happening to me. But yeah. like when I did get emotionally involved in something, let's say like Charlottesville, um, yeah, I ended up with acid burns on one hand and, you know, being all over the national news. So yeah. you're on national news. Oh, yeah. Well, I was on the poster. I was supposed to speak at Charlottesville. Oh, OK. Um, yeah. Right. One of the guys on the. One of the guys on that list that no longer is involved with those people, but uh, that's not a whole other story. But yeah, that was that's what I said. I got emotionally involved and invested into something that I shouldn't have. I lived my whole life basically uh, doing the old um, Church of the Subgenius slack magic, like surviving on synchronicity. Right. I've spent most of my, I mean, a good portion of my life bouncing between you know synchronicities, and I, my friends, a lot of my friends are like, dude, you're like a cat with nine thousand lives. It's just one of those, I guess, yeah, some people just have that ability to see through. Is it like, well, like what you'd say, like a red pilling, seeing through the matrix kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, it's a, I don't know. It's the programming that we're a part of 
it seems to recognize us when we become aware of any basically routines that it's throwing out. Mm -hmm. It's almost, it's almost as if we're dealing with something that's highly cognizant on multiple levels. And yet as soon it throws out all these lines, we're going to call them reality tunnels. It throws out all these reality tunnels and each one's on its own frequency. And you see the evidence of, of, of the, of these events through different phenomena in your life. But as soon as you really just hone in on any series of events, you instantly become a part of that reality tunnel and the other ones fade away. And this is why our lives are so fundamentally different. We have such different opinions about the exact same thing. This is why multiple different witnesses to the same event can convey that same event in totally different ways on police reports. Mm -hmm. so, I don't know. This is, I'm always studying. I'm always studying reality in my situation and, and how I react to situations. And it's just it's a given. So I can't explain to anybody the why of it, but what I can assert with confidence is that no matter what is going on around Jason, if I just remain calm and obje objectively observe it, I, I don't suffer the consequences of, of whatever's going on in my environment. But as soon, if I see two, if I see two groups fighting and I inst instantly, if I all of a sudden begin to resonate with one group over the other. I guess some, somehow I get sucked into it. Maybe, maybe somebody behind me who is also distant from these events realizes that I'm a sympathizer from one side and just hits me in the side of the head mm. from behind. And now I'm sucked into the events that I was only participating in because I, I became emotionally invested. You know, Hey, listen, it's just so crazy. It's, it is. It really it's is. All. Well, your emotions, like uh, we it's talked about em emotions and language and stuff, how, th how they shape reality. You know, so like once you once you attach yourself emotionally to a situation, I think you're you're that's what you're really attached to it because you're you're now emotionally attached to it. Yep, I'm a 100 percent. I'm a believer. It's, yeah. Oh, well, you know what? All. We just jumped right into like this is actual content, man. I mean, we didn't even, we didn't even, like start the show yet, but that's cool. Oh, you should have been recording. <laughs> I am recording. Oh, I'm always recording, dude. But uh, we did not. No, I did not miss that. No, I was like, no, Jason's coming on as soon as he gets on. I hit record. That's how it goes. Yeah, I have a. I got my team. I'm still, I, I brought somebody else on full time and he nice. starts on the first, but we're about to do uh, a podcast type deal. Trying, trying to distance some of our content from YouTube. And nice. one of the, one of the, one of the, the, uh, the new shows we're going to be debuting is hot Mike. And this is just me and the guys and a gal as we drive around or, or we're in the office or studio or whatever, just our, our conversations are going to be recorded and hot mic's going to be absolutely uncensored, and whatever you hear, you hear. Nice. It's us laughing and joking around. Sometimes we talk about deep and serious shit, but that's just one of our our three three uh, channels. We're gonna have we're gonna debut with three channels off of YouTube. But, nice. Uh, that's one what, thing. We're gonna uh, do what if you don't mind? What platform are you guys using? We're gonna go with. Uh, I already have a website, archaics.com. We're gonna go ahead and go with our uh, archaics.tv. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> It'll right have on, three dude. channels. One of one of them is uh, on the road, like like the last four videos that I just released. Mm -hmm. I was on the road the whole time, but future on the road videos will be with a team and not just me traveling all by myself. That was a real that was a real pattern break in my life. Uh, I was uh, I now realize that I'm not going to ever do that again without a driver. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to it's hard to control cameras. I was controlling my phone camera from a mount. And I was controlling my GoPro camera by hand, just pointing it wherever. Right. I probably I probably have 20 hours of footage of some really unique geological formations all around the United States. I, I, I took a hell of a route. 
the the route I the route that I I went I went to San Diego was totally different than the route that I used coming back. And uh yeah, it's, it took 10 days round trip. Right on. Right on, man. That's that's cool. That's I've done this I've done the California through Texas uh to Tennessee twice and then I did uh California to Connecticut uh the northern way twice. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very interesting. Stay, very interesting. I try to stay off the interstates though. The interstates it seems like the interstates go through the most boring topography. They do. They do. I, I because I've done each one uh each way. Once I did it uh freeway and then the second time I did it off the freeways. Yeah, those old state highways mm-hmm. most of them have uh, 75 or 80 miles an hour you can go, but the interstates never let you go that fast. And the state highways, they go through some awesome scenery. There's some really cool stuff scenery wise in the United States, especially in the West. It's yeah, really cool. I, yeah. I had no idea. I mean, uh, it's really, it's really unsettling how empty our country is. Yeah. A, and, and they talk about overpopulation and that kind of stuff yeah. and depopulation agendas and whatever. And there's just vast amounts of, of this area. That's just empty. It's yeah. Well, I saw empty. Starting, starting at Eden, Texas, where there was about 5,000 wind turbines from Eden, Texas, all the way to Roswell. And then from Wa- Roswell, all the way to Hondo, uh, New Mexico. From Hondo, New Mexico, back down to ten, all the way in. Uh, I went. I went through. Oh, uh, uh, Alamogordo. Oh, uh, I saw White Sands Missile Base. Oh, uh, all this area is wind turbines. I, I must have passed two hundred thousand wind turbines from Texas to to California. That's and a shame then, too. It's those- crazy how many. I mean, the so in some places, the whole entire horizon is nothing mm-hmm. but wind turbines dude and when people you know when this is a meme it's like you know the dystopian future that they've been talking about since like the 1950s this is it drive past through texas drive drive through arizona new mexico you drive past these thousands and thousands of miles of turbines these wind turbines they are as dystopian future as you can get it seems to me that they're trying to keep them away from the interstates they're all along the state highways Mm -hmm. and they're and they're they're packed. I mean, whole whole flat top mesas in West Texas are absolutely covered. Right, Lit- the communities of the of these wind turbines. Well, why do and you then, think they're trying to keep them away from the from the interstate? I, I don't know. I don't know why. It's just an observation. Mm, it's okay. uh, I've never I haven't seen any from from the interstate. I saw them all from these old state high, hmm. highways that I took as my route through Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, part of Nevada. I only passed through the southern part of Nevada, and that was to get through Henderson so I could go to the Grand Canyon. Okay. Yeah, there's so many cool melted, like, civilizational oh relics in those oh, states. I took, a lot of video, I took a lot of video footage already. Yeah. And some of, some of those four videos, uh, I show some of that, but I have a lot to reveal because I still have to edit a whole, two whole uh, SD chips from my GoPro are just packed full of film. Nice. Can't wait for that. So yeah, it'll be. Little, I'm sure it's a different type of because uh, we watch a lot of of that kind of stuff from like John Levi. I'm sure your videos would be a little bit different yeah. than his, right? Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> I'm familiar with his work. No, no, I know, but it's uh, you're you're a completely different personality. So I, it's, it's like you can watch his videos, and you could probably make the video on, a, a video on the exact same thing, and be a completely different video. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's a. Uh... He's pretty much structured. He's got his. He, he's mm-hmm. stuck in his ways. He's got his format. He's not going to change it, and I'm cool with that. A lot. Some people like that familiarity. I just, on a monthly basis, I'm. I gotta. I gotta break pattern. I gotta come up with better ways and newer ways to do <laughs> videos. All that. I don't, well, you make I, a lot. Of, you make a lot of content, bro. Like you are. 
in this thing that we call, I don't know, what are we, the, the truth? But it's not the truth movement anymore because that's been hijacked and called, I don't know, whatever, whatever this is that we're doing online now. You are one of the most prolific posters of late. And, you think so? Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, dude, you post all the time. Who posts more than you? And the amount of content and the like, the charts, just the oh, stuff. Yeah. There's just so much stuff. That's what I mean by prolific, man. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I do know I have I'm still four. digging through all your stuff. It's we, uh, Grognak, how long have we been listening to – how long have you been listening to Archaics? Um, since last spring. Okay. And I started – what was it, like June or July you started feeding it to us? Yeah. Okay. So I started back in June last year, Jason, and I'm still digging through because I I go back and re-listen to some of them a second time because I'll hear something in one of your newer videos and I got to go back and listen to six year old videos to now I know what he meant. So there's there's a lot of that, a lot of information, man. Yeah, I had a blast in San Diego. It was a, it it wasn't closure. It was actually the book the book tree books uh that i visited i have been getting old reprint books from the 17 and 1800s from this man paul tice mm-hmm. who's the owner of the book tree he's the publisher of that's all he publishes these old reprints so he doesn't he doesn't redact them he doesn't edit them he doesn't make them tidy he does absolutely perfect facsimiles of the old pages from old books and then he just puts a new cover on them and and uh it's badass what he does. And this is where I got a lot of my education. It was awesome being able to walk into that bookstore after 23 years of receiving packages from this man every single month for 16 years in prison. Well, and, that's, uh, that's really cool. That's not like a closure. That's kind of a, yeah, I don't know what you a, call it, but that's, high, that's an awesome moment though, man. It's a milestone for sure. Oh, for sure. And he publishes, he published your first book. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, he's actually well, he's a reprint publisher, but his stuff is so unique. And he used to be an employee. He used to be the personal videographer for Zechariah Sitchin. Yeah, he's worked with David Hatcher Childers. He's worked with several big people in the industry. He actually published uh, Jordan Peterson's work. And uh, excuse me, not jo- Jordan Maxwell's. Oh, oh uh, I was about to say he just lost so much credit right there. Yeah, oh, uh, it was Jordan <laughs> Maxwell. He published jo- Jordan Maxwell. He published uh, books that Tracy Twyman couldn't get published anywhere else. No, nah, I love Tracy Twyman. Now, I know there's everybody has different opinions on Jordan Maxwell. What's just like Zechariah Sitchin, but this guy, man, he this guy was connected to all of them. That's awesome. Yeah, he was he was something else. It's uh, Jordan Maxwell and I were supposed to talk, and uh-huh. Paul because we both it was Jordan Maxwell, uh, Neil Freer. Jack Berenger, uh, Hugh Montgomery, they're all gone now. All of mm. them passed away. These all, all these guys have written some fantastic material, and a book tree has published all, all their stuff. But other than that, they're just a reprint publisher. And but in two thousand six, by two by two thousand six, I had already been receiving packages on a monthly basis, ordering books from the book tree catalog for about seven years since about nineteen ninety nine, mm. and. Uh, uh, by that time, I went ahead and just submitted my first book, The Lost Scriptures of Giza, to Paul, and I asked him, hey, do you get any other authors that uh, that you deal with would like to critique this? I'm open to suggestions, but I'm, I'm also aware that this is the type of material that's found throughout your catalog. However, I don't, I don't see any books that cover this topic to this degree. And I and I, I told him please check out my bibliography in the back of the book because you'll see it's o- it's over four hundred uh, old uh, bibliographic references to uh, show where I got all this data. 
about nine months go by, I don't hear from him. And, and then all of a sudden I get a, I get a letter with a, with a copy of a contract. And, uh, that's what started in 2006. And since then he's published six of my books. That's awesome, man. Especially yeah. like that kind of a publisher, because you're doing research from books that he reprints basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And your yeah. book is basically like a TLDR of his, <laughs> of all of his stuff. That's, that's, that's really cool, man. And you got to, and you got to, you know, to meet the guy and that's awesome. Drove all yeah, the way out cool. there. Yeah. Going to that bookstore. It was really cool. Very I'm cool. going back. I'll be going back pretty soon. Cause there are treasures in that bookstore. I, I, oh, I bet man. Yeah. He, he can only give me so many deals. So <laughs> I, I'm a, yeah, I almost broke the bank on that one. Well, you'll have that at those stores when you're, when you like to read, you know, yeah. 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 Right well, on, he's, uh, he's got, well, he's got a section in the bookstore. That's all book tree books that he's published all the reprints. And mm-hmm. it's awesome. But I've already, I've already been through that. I've already read all, <laughs> all every book that I want to read. I read in prison. What I was going through was all the aisles of books that has been collected since the sixties uh, and seventies and eighties and nineties as people in Southern California bring him books and he mm-hmm. just buys them and puts them on the shelf. He has no, no classification, no catalog system. You never know from shelf to shelf what you'll see. So I filled up an entire cardboard box full of books from the 1800s and uh, nice. it's crazy. And there's still a lot more I'm going to go back and get. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I love, I love those, those kind of bookstores where they don't really, they don't really catalog stuff and you just, you're like, oh, wow, you'll, you know, like, you'll just find a gem. But that bookstore sounds like it's like all gems on top of gems. Yeah. Well, so. in, a, in a 10 day trip, I returned to Texas with three cardboard boxes packed full of books from the 1800s and in a few all the way up to 1911, 1912. Nice. So these were very high quality books. Uh, some of them uh, could have, oh, we Googled a few of them. And like the Longfellow book is in mint condition from like 1872. It's all of Longfe- Longfellow's uh, poems, but it's just masterwork cover and all that. And it goes for like $560. It's a, it's crazy. I bought it for 10 bucks. Mm. It's a, That's this awesome. Is what I, this is what I've been doing. It's the bookstores that you're not going to be able to find these things in because those who are operating these bookstores, Booktree was just an anomaly. It was rare. I've been finding all these. Like when I went to Roswell, it's a UFO city. So everybody's there for ET, a UFO, uh, get some get some of the urban legends on, on Area 51 and Hangar 18, and, sure. which is further away. But it all started right there with, with the supposed alien assist UFO crash at Roswell. Now, I, we, we it just, it's a... Uh, it's it's a joke when you go there. I don't know if you guys have ever been gone it's, there, but, but it's a joke. Not, I've, I've driven dealing, through. I've driven through. Yeah, we're not dealing with a UFO crash. We're dealing with with a just a town that has really capitalized off the story, and it's it's really ridiculous everything they got. But they've got a lot of antique shops and little little just little general stores all set up on this one big strip. So I started at one end and I hit every one of these little boutiques and deals and all, and they're using old ass books as props <laughs> to sell local merchandise. They're using them as, as background and stuff. So I'm pulling these books off the shelves and I'm asking them for, Hey, what do you want for this old book right here? And it says, Oh, we just use those as props in the back. And they're trying to sell all kinds of Indian beads and Indian stuff and all that and trying to make the store look old and antique. Man, I bought them all. I went through there, and they were amazed at me. Like, like, why are you want all these old old books? I'm looking at this, I'm looking at these books. Like, oh my god, Elements of Geology, 1861. I'm going through all these books, and they're just slapping a five dollar price on this one, two dollars and fifty cents on this one, five dollars. 
I don't, I don't, I don't act surprised in front of them, but my heart's beating. I walked away with Roswell. Oh, the night I stayed in a motel after leaving Roswell, I posted my, I posted my first uh, road trip video. It was four videos ago, and I show all the books that I got for sixty bucks. Just sixty dollars <laughs> got me all those books from Roswell. Those people don't even know. They just. They have no idea the value of these old books, and they just slap these little small prices on them because they don't think anybody wants them. Right? But, uh, crazy man. So, that's that's how you do it, though. You know, yeah. you go to antique stores and like those kind of bookstores, and you'll always find something. Well, yeah, not always. I'm sure that well, a lot of these bookstores they've already been they've been picked through by people who want to get rid of things too. A yeah, lot of that stuff. They've yeah. been picked through by people who are looking for what I'm looking for, old mm-hmm. books, but mm-hmm. they're not uh, a. <laughs> They're going to the bookstores. I avoid the bookstores. Go, yeah. go to these antique shops and go to these little general stores and and just just off the wall places out in the country. The f- the further you get away from the interstate, the old the older the materials become in all these towns. And uh, it's just really crazy. It's just I can't believe the wealth of material. I brought I brought probably close to ten grand worth of old books, and I might have spent a whole a total of two hundred and fifty bucks nice. for all the books in all three boxes. Nice. I even bought whole stacks of National Geographics from the nineteen fifties. I bought whole stacks of Life magazine from the nineteen forties. But uh, just just you know interesting things like cookbooks, you know, uh nineteen oh one elements or something like that. Something about all the different ways you can make badass dishes and cooking with just a few ingredients and stuff. And it's a, it's a book dated 1901, but it's just, you never know what you'll find. And I'm always posting on my channel, those interesting things. Like even my, one of my most popular videos is Sears Roebuck, 1897. You know, I just showed, showed over a hundred pictures out of that. It's crazy. Yeah, man, there's dude, old books, old books are the best. They really are. Yeah, they're, they're going to be the only thing around if anything ever happens to the internet. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why. I, yeah, I have, um, I have two or three uh, boxes of printer paper, and I've been printing out my PDF library. Yeah, because yeah. I have, I have literally the Library of Alexandria in PDF form. I have, yeah, I have a good. five five terabyte hard drive that's just about full, and I have like a couple other. Uh, thumb drives and random drives that have like ridiculous amounts. And every time <clears throat> like the archaics Aaron's uh, book club on telegram, mm-hmm. I'm always grabbing books from there. There's actually a channel on telegram called the library of Alexandria. And I'll grab PDS from there. There's another one like that's telegrams an amazing asset for that, but, yes. but they're PDFs and an EMP or, you know, something similar can get rid of all your PDF library. So print them out. Yeah. See, Oh, I have these Faraday bags, and I've I've tested them. I've I've, I've put devices in them, and I've tried to uh, smart share, and I've tried to call the device that was in the bag, and there's just nothing. There's no so the Faraday bags that I got are very good. There's no mm-hmm. signal going through them or anything. So I, I use fair. I use a, a I have a large Faraday bag, and then I have smaller individual Faraday bags that I put different devices in, and I have hard drives, and I have and I have thumb drives. I do the same thing because. I'm aware. I also have a laptop that I never use. I, I just I just got all the stuff on it that I want, and it stays in a large Faraday bag as well. If anything ever happens, like an EMP or anything like that, I will at least have my PDF library, and I'll be able to, because I have a printer, I'll be able mm-hmm. to print those up. Because even if the internet goes down, the infrastructure goes down, as long as I can generate electricity, and I can because I have generators, right. then I can go ahead and start printing all the all these things straight off that laptop. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I um, actually have uh, our buddy Matt Landman is the uh, Sparrow is his brand of he's, he does like um, EMF clothing and bags and stuff. I have one of his, oh, yeah. his Faraday bags. Yeah, for my phone. I need to get one. I need I need to get a bigger one so I can throw all my electronics in it. Yeah, they got they got real big ones, and they I've got they got three different sizes that I found on Amazon, and uh, I bought them. And the big one is really big. It's it's like it's the size of two laptops side by side. Okay, so like a it's almost like a like a small messenger bag size. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty big. Well, you know the Faraday bags are designed to uh, you put something in them and then you fold them like one third of the way down, then they Velcro shut and mm-hmm. they're, and. You know, at first when I bought them, I was skeptical because I was like, "God damn, man, really Velcro? You're you're, you're gonna? Uh, I'm gonna risk? I'm gonna risk all this data? Uh, some <laughs> Velcro? But you know what? And there's no signal going through that shit. Nice. So. But yeah, PDS libraries. Once all this stuff, I have. I mean, I and I have a large book library, uh, physical books myself. Um, a couple of sets of old encyclopedias. I wish I still had my encyclopedias from when I was a kid. We had one of the early, like, 19-teens or 1920s Encyclopedia Britannica. Like, one of the very earliest sets. It was my grandparents. And it was missing, like, part of the letter E, I think. <laughs> but it was a full set other than that. But that, yeah. that in a move, my mom probably donated that. Anything before World War, World War II is, mm-hmm. is something to keep. I mean, I focus on books on the 1800s. That's right. I, I like books all the way up to about 1912, but I will, I, I have found several of value from the 1930s, but once you get past that, the Nuremberg trials, once you get past the 1946, it's over. The entire publishing world shifted. Everything is being redacted. Nothing after 1946 is the same as, as pre-World War II. It's a, uh, the the people that own the publishing industry basically did their power grab in 1946. It was over. Yes, they did. They've pretty much rewritten the history of the world. Yes, they did. Um, and that includes and that includes church history too. Mm, of course, mm. of course it does. Yeah, it's you know, the Bible is one of their greatest masterpieces. We right. We have one of their. Yeah, we have. That's one of the the great debates is um, amongst our our friends in our chats is. Uh, how much can you really trust the the book that you can purchase at Walmart? Yeah, you know? it's all when it when it comes to the biblical material. There's a pretty good litmus test I follow. It's all after after having studied Albert T. Clay, and he's a scholar from about a hundred years ago who really isolated many many passages out of the Old Testament. Show shows their provenance. So he's not he's just one. He's just one of many, but he's the he's one of my favorites, and. Uh, my litmus test for the Bible is, is, is very simple. It's a, uh, I understand that the vast majority of the Old Testament is borrowed materials from older cultures that was basically passed through a sieve of one culture. And I'm cool with that. They preserved these very ancient concepts and ideas. And now that I understand the culture that did it and why they did it, I get it. So I understand there's a lot of value in the Old Testament. And then and with the New Testament, I see where this, this, this maneuvering go, goes even deeper in, in passages such as, which I totally disagree with, but in fundamentalist Christianity, it's all about the Jew first, then the Gentile, Mm -hmm. because that's what's in the written word. 
So I understand where these manipulations were crept into the text to, to support the idea that one people is superior to another. But, but the litmus test is, is there's a lot of value in the biblical materials. But I have to watch out for phrases like that that don't resonate with me. Something inside me almost almost darkens when I hear things like like that. that when it comes to salvation, it's the Jew first, then the Gentile. That, that is such a racist statement. There's absolutely nothing spiritual about it. So I can go ahead and omit that as a, as being a part of any canon. That right there is what what is known as an interpolation. So well, once you once you once you get a good grasp. Uh, of this concept, you can go through the Bible and you can pretty much appreciate it for its value and ignore all the BS. There you go. Um, yeah, I have always been a big fan of just the red words. I always say like, look, if it, I'm not saying everybody needs to be Christian, everybody needs to be this, but if everybody could just like chill out and do what the red words say, I don't think there'd be as, as many problems. Oh yeah, yeah there's no doubt. The, right. red letter, the red letter edition of the Bible is uh, it, it wouldn't, if you were to live by that, it's, you wouldn't have to be called Christian or anything right. because a Buddhist would live just like that. It, it's uh, amazing. Someone, yeah. Because, uh, because those are, those are spirit. That's a collection of spirituality that is both is all together. It's Buddhist, it's Christian. It's all the good parts of all of those things. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree hundred percent on that. Yeah. When I heard you, when, uh, when Grognak was like, Hey, you got to listen to his Bible stuff. He's like, cause I'm what's okay. So I'm what's a, a very contrarian Christian where I like, I, I am like, I'm the guy who watched Zeitgeist and got the whole Jesus being Horus, being Mithra, being all these other guys. And because, and then I, until I listened to what you talk about where it's basically um, something in the programming that comes around every cycle. It has to have one of these things, right? The Jesus guy. What I forgot what you yeah. call him. What you call? Yeah, uh, the benefactor. The benefactor, just, right? Or whatever. Yeah, like, <clears throat> well, yeah, and like in this in this go round, it's Jesus. In the last go round, it was Mithra. In the time before that, it was Horus. Right. 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 And, See, you're you are correct. You are you are correct about the attachments because. It was the church. It was it was it was the church that that had already adopted the basically the the uh, the mythos of Mithra and Orpheus and Dionysius. Mm -hmm. These these attachments of born of a virgin mother, having twelve disciples, being able to do miracles, raising the dead, uh, dying when the sun dark when the sun was eclipsed. All these elements are far older than christianity this person whoever he was apollonius of tyana if you if he was uh jesus bar Kokhba, whoever this person was if he was a buddhist missionary on, on uh, at one of the thirty thousand initiates of osaka that left india and colonized the middle east spreading buddhism it doesn't matter what his personal identity was we know something significant happened and a personality had entered the world and affected a lot of people and there's a lot of misinformation where the where all the complexity is introduced is 300 years later all of a sudden we're giving all kinds of elements that are not a part of the original narrative and that is all the miracles the water the water into wine there's no mention of a, of a virgin birth in the gospel of Mar of Marcion I mean all these attachments were done by the church and they were attaching all the mithras 
Orpheus and Dionysius attachments and many others. I mean, uh, anybody who's done a study of comparative religion knows there's 16 different crucified saviors before Jesus. So, and they all had this narrative uh, born on December 25th. All this is the old sun god narrative, but the original story of Jesus didn't have any of that. It was just called the sayings of Jesus, later called the Gospel of Marcion, from which they, from which the church took that copy from a Turkish navigator, and they took that copy and expanded it to the Book of Mark, and then using the Book of Mark, they created the books of Matthew and Luke. Later on, they introduced a Gnostic version, which was called the Book of John. This is our four Gospels. <laughs> but yeah, all that was added. All that was added by official churchianity. The original mm. story was just the sayings of Jesus, and it's basically just the red letter part uh, editions of the Bible. Ha! You call it churchianity too. <laughs> We call yeah. it that. We, that's what we call it here in uh, the United States. We have uh, Baskin Robbins, thirty-one flavors of churchianity. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Because I mean, you know what I always thought was funny growing up as a fundamentalist uh, Christian whose family is all Bob Jones people. Uh, my family, Jason, I don't know if you know my like on my mom's side of the family is like all preachers and missionaries and missionaries' wives and preachers' wives, and so I grew up very, very fundamentalist American Baptist, and I always wondered why we needed to send missionaries <clears throat> back to Europe where Christianity came from. Like they needed American Christianity to go, to go over there and show them how it was done. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I, I get it. It's uh that was one of the. But I was a little kid because my aunt was a missionary to France, and I was just like, I, I think she just wants to go live in Paris. Is what it is. Like, because <laughs> like in the eighties, Paris was still pretty damn cool. You know, yeah, now I've it's, never been there. I've what's never that? No, been there. Oh, I've seen the movies. You know, in the pictures, like everybody's seen, and now it's just like you know, it's an African third world city. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Islam is pretty much overrun Europe mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all the way to the UK. But I mean, it's not Europeans fault. I mean, it's just like it's not America's fault that our, our liberal leftist government has betrayed us on so many on so many levels. It's why we're going through all the problems we're going through now. Right. It's not the people. It's not the people's fault. The government's controlled. Yeah, I mean, we don't elect our officials. And when we do, all we did was elect two people who were placed there for a purpose anyway. Right. Everybody that's put in front of us to vote for anyways is bought and paid for. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's yeah. no doubt. I mean, the circus that's ongoing right now with the Biden administration, the <laughs> fact that he has not been impeached or escorted out of the White House, it's basically it's basically I believe that the message the message being conveyed to the American people now is basically we're going to do what the fuck we want to do. We yep. don't care what you, what you expose. Yep. That's exactly it cuz like he gets up there and like in some days he's like an old grandpa where he's telling you a story that's not true at all and he's just making it up as he goes along because he's senile. Like yeah. where he was where he was talking about being in a military hospital and they took the top of his head off eight times. Like that story. And, yeah, yeah. But then the next day he's out there and he's yelling about white supremacy. You know, and how white people need to, you know, step back, Jack, or whatever. I mean, but but then but then you have then you have John Fetterman, the new John Fetterman showed up yesterday. Like, and I think that what they're doing is it's part of this whole "fuck you, what are you going to do about it?" sort of mentality of uh, they're they're like openly replacing people. Like, there's four or five different Joe Bidens, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. You know, like in a real world, none of this none of these things would happen, right? Yeah, it's it, it's crazy. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys listened to one of our last live live 
videos were with the Discord group was about the Mandela effect, and we made some pretty groundbreaking mm. new observations about that because uh, we were just openly chatting like you and I are right now. Mm. Shiva Shampoo had had a list. He knows a lot of the Mandela effects. And it just as I was listening to all these, it was adding to the ones that I was already aware of. Mm-hmm. So. It's just my mind started expanding and opening up. And, and during that episode, I we had made two really important observations about Mandela effect. And this is relative to what you and I are talking about now. And with all these 60 or 70 obvious uh, Mandela effects, it's it becomes very obvious that the Mandela effect doesn't harm us in any way. There are no examples of the Mandela effect that negatively impact the observers right. or, or, or humanity. So when I made that connection, I said that out loud in the Discord group, and people were like, yeah, man, we can't think of any. So that, necess- that, that instantly shifted my mind to a second proposition. If there's nothing that's negatively impacting us and Mandela effect is agreed that this is going on, it's happening, then, and I mean, there's many examples that can be explained away, but there's still too many that can't. Sure. And and uh, if that's the case, I'll, I, noticed, I noticed almost instantly that when it comes to Mandela effect, it's always the most noticeable things in pop culture that everyone would notice it's not little insignificant intangibles that only a few people would notice it's always major things that a lot of people have noticed and that right there is also a data point Mm -hmm. it's almost as if something is trying to get our attention and tell us hey you need to wake up this shit ain't real you need to wake up you are not in a real world because the Mandela effect doesn't harm us in any way. And it's it trying to draw attention to the very things that all of us uh, can basically agree that we have observed or experienced. I mean, even the Chick-fil-A one just blew my mind. Oh, that's right. There's, remember, a, there's a Chick-fil-A remember, one. Yeah. The... Yeah. I remember, I remember distinct, distinctly thinking in the past, Chick-fil-A. Why would they why would they want to go with Chick-fil-A? It's C-H-I-C hyphen filet for a Christian a chain of chicken stores. Mm. Why would they go with Chic? Why would they try to sound French? Right. Uh, chic filet, but it, but this is known to be a, a very Christian fundamental. They don't even they don't they're not even open on Sundays. So uh, <laughs> But, well, yeah, but, we, we call it Jesus chicken. You know, it's the Lord's chicken. And and yeah. they, they call them, you know, racist fundamental Christians and people don't want to eat it. And there's like gays make Instagram posts about, well, how they're they're eating this, you know, it, 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 they're something about going to get kicked out of the gay club because they're eating the, yeah. the Chick-fil-A. Oh, we used whatever, to remember, right? yeah. we, we used to make fun of them here in Texas talking about, oh, you can go get that French chicken because <laughs> it's because it's cheek. So. But that's not the case anymore. All throughout Texas, it's it's Chick-fil-A with a CK now. And our old jokes don't make any sense anymore. Mm. And Chick-fil-A has even put out a statement that they have always been called Chick-fil-A. And they've never been chic. And that's bullshit. There's too many people <laughs> remember it. Too many people remember right. it. Right. And is there, re- is there much residue? Because, dude, Skull is so pissed right now, Grognak. Skull. We were talking. To Skull. This is Alt Skull's topic. Mandela. Well, it's on the newer chicken. Yeah. What's that? That's old hat. What's he mad about? The chicken's old. What? No, is no, no, no. Skull not being here is he's going to be. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just mad he missed it. But no. Um. 
Yeah, Chick Fil A. No, what was the new one? There was one that just there was a brand new Mandela drop just like this weekend. Man, there, there, there's so many of them. Yeah, and it's but that's the, the, the thing that I've always said about them is it's always pop culture or something harmless or irrelevant. Yes, you know, but obvious. So. Right. It, to me, it was like, if it's a simulation, this is way before I was ever into simulation theory. Um, but I was like, if something's doing that, you know, if it's, if it's demons, cause it was, you know, it was demons messing with like reality or whatever. It was Satan. Right? right. Right. Yeah. And I was like, well, if that's what Satan's doing, he's only fucking with Hollywood. So whatever. But then there was oh. the lion and the lamb. Oh yeah. That's all good. But, but listen, Johnny, this is. If Mandela effect is if if something is using the most obvious points of reference for us to agree that so, that things are being changed, mm -hmm. and those changes that we agree that are that that we notice have have actually, you know, we agree that they really are changed, and they don't negatively impact us. Then, like in my video, I I postulated that we're we're dealing with benefactor a benefactor protocol or benefactor communication. Somebody on the outside is trying to get us on the inside to wake the fuck up. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I will now let's look at this from the obverse. Imagine Mandela effects that were designed to harm you. Mm. So, so ima imagine waking up one morning. With the IRS breathing down your neck, two agents are at your door. They're talking about doing a walkthrough audit of all your properties. And when you go online to figure out what the hell's happening, you find out you haven't filed taxes in three years, but you know you did. Right. So Mandela effects could be, if, there, if, there, if it's something as simple as an edit, then if something was trying to harm us, they could easily do that in multiple levels. Easily do that. So I'm a, I'm with the Mandela effect being benefactor communication. That is more along the lines of where the majority of us lie around here. That it does happen. Now we have some some people that don't believe like certain ones, like the C3PO's leg or whatever. Um, that you'd you'd be surprised the amount of arguments that go on over that. I remember <laughs> the silver leg. So oh, uh, you remember but, the silver leg? Okay. I remember the silver leg and I know some people say they never had one, but I, I had those toys when I was in the eighties when I was growing up. But, but listen, <laughs> the, I believe that the very fact that we have a multiplicity of Mandela effect references, Shiva mm -hmm. shampoo has like 60 or 70 of them. Oh, there's a ton. Them. Yeah, there's a ton. So, so the very fact that there are so many automatic automatically precludes that, it's not a real phenomenon. It just means that that we don't always agree on all the same ones. But I seriously doubt that if there was a chart done of 200 Mandela effects, that any one individual would ever agree to every single one or disagree to every single one. Right. So, <clears throat> this tells me it's a very real phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I, think so, it, I think it depends on to what degree you're actually engaged with the subject, too. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I mean, if you're close-minded and you actually believe that we live in a in a in a uh, a real physical reality, then you're probably not going to be open to that benefactor communication anyway. And so you're really a part of the construct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, pretty much an NPC at that point. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Jason, do you mind giving us like a real quick overview of the what has uh, what you've discovered encoded in the pyramid? Because we still get a lot of questions about the pyramid in Atlantis a lot. 
Okay, that, 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 that's pretty easy. Okay. <laughs> I know you've done it a lot. Maybe just like a quick rundown. Yeah, that's pretty easy. Uh, Frederick Norton Lewis in the 1700s visited the Great Pyramid site and found it almost half buried in sand. This is not the official narrative. This is not the narrative that's in, in the history books today. But Frederick Norton Lewis found nothing but seashells all the way around the Great Pyramid. Now, uh, by that time in the 1700s, the casing blocks were gone. He saw no evidence that casing blocks had been on the pyramid. He saw the naked limestone block structure that we see today. However, Al Biruni, 650 years before him, wrote a book called The Wonders of Ancient Nations, where he describes the Great Pyramid totally covered in white gleaming casing blocks, just as mentioned by the Greek historians Diodorus Siculus and Strabo and Herodotus. So, um, also old, old Arabian, old, old Arabian geographers, but Al Biruni, Al Biruni also mentioned something very interesting. He said two thirds the way up the great to the two great pyramids, you could see the stained water line of when the pyramids were underwater for centuries. And, uh, like none of this is in the historical books about that, but in, in the archaics research, I show the ancient texts that talk about Egypt was called the raised land because it ra it raised out of the sea. That's what created the delta. That's why the whole area from the Sahara and all that used to be underwater. So it's, it's an old seabed and the great pyramids were lifted up out of that. And uh, the oldest depictions of the great pyramids are not of pyramidal structures on land. They're of pyramidal structures that are, that are floating in water. So people used to be able to take their ships and go up to the Great Pyramids, but they couldn't climb them because the white limestone casing blocks hmm. at a declivity of 51 degrees was impossible to climb. So it was just something they could observe. Now, uh, Frederick Norton Lewis, he opened up uh, basically the door to modern pyramid research, followed by Napoleon. They excavated the entire area, dug out the sands, dug out Giza, and made many, many discoveries. Uh, but a lot of those discoveries were not uh, they didn't really translate into the Western world. Uh, the, Fr the French measured everything. They did a really good job, but it took men like John Taylor and Robert Menzies, uh, 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 Rutherford, uh, engineer David Davidson, and uh, uh, H. Aldersmith, these, the, uh, uh, Sir Flinders Petrie, with the most scientific measurements ever conduct conducted on the Great Pyramid, still used and accepted by science today. Uh, to the thousandth of an inch. It's, it's the only measurements that I, I use also is, are Sir Flinders Petrie. And it was Sir Flinders Petrie's measurements that that basically opened the floodgates to understanding the internal arrangements of the Great Pyramid. Because I by the time I had looked at his material and used his numbers for all the rectilinear distances inside and outside the Great Pyramid, I had already finished Chronicon. And Chronicon showed me that our entire world history is structured in this strange series of palindromes, but it's always in intervals of 138 years. And that it's almost as if editing occurs every 138 years. It's not always cataclysmic. So knowing this 138-year patterning and knowing that it was attached to the Phoenix phenomenon that's mentioned in many ancient texts and records and traditions, and understanding that the number 138 was something that the ancient Mexicans were trying to replicate in, in their 138 dragon heads on some of their pyramids, 138 uh, uh, effigies carved in the side of pyramids, uh, 138 uh, feet high. Uh, when I say feet, I'm talking about I think it's called tunnels or tunis. I'm not really sure, but it's a unit or hunabs. That's right. It's hunabs, 138 hunabs. That's a, their, their unit of measurement seems to, to be divisible by 138 in multiple different ways in the distancing of like the pyramid of the sun, the pyramid of the moon, uh, the black pyramid. But 
uh, getting back to Giza in Egypt, it's uh, I had already documented in Chronicon this amazing 138-year chronology of the Phoenix phenomenon leading up to 1902, with the next one being 2040. <laughs> Excuse me. So to look at the diagrams and measurements of Sir Flinders Petrie as recorded by the engineer David Davidson in his epic work, The Great Pyramid, in 1926. I could not believe that all these measurements that that that, that I show on my channel, I show I show all the architectural layouts, I show uh, 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 basically where where this unit of measurement come from called the pyramid inch. It's a uh, it comes from the antechamber. It's a it's a it's a it's a small boss outcrop. And even as early as John Taylor and Robert Menzies in the 1860s and 70s, and, and later and later the astronomer Royal Royale Charles Piazzi Smith, when they researched that granite boss, they realized that being in the dead center of the pyramid the way it was, that everything was to be measured from it and that it was only one inch high. And it doesn't it didn't make architectural sense why it's there. And they realized every measurement in the Great Pyramid is perfectly divisible by this little granite boss. Therefore, the pyramid had a self-referencing system. This was understood 140 years ago. Hmm. So they started they started using that little granite boss and they, they measured it out and found out that it's very, very close to the British inch. So they so <coughs> Sir Flinders Petrie measure the entire pyramid in inches he measured he measured every everything in inches and it's beautiful the way he done it and it was my discovery that all these measurements inside and outside the great pyramid and even in multiple dimensions of of dividing or multiplying by pi and phi and curvature we find hundreds of examples of rectilinear distances that are perfectly perfectly divisible by 138 and to find this type of structuring to comport with the basic history of the world is is not a coincidence we're dealing with some type we're dealing with some type of we're, we're dealing with a structure that was designed to do something to time or to cause something when a certain time came we're dealing we're dealing with programming and we're dealing with not a circuit board but a three-dimensional artifact of great weight that is that is that has been laid out perfectly like like a computerized template to to affect whatever it's going to affect maybe i believe reality itself i believe the construct itself well it was designed to upload something into the construct and this is why we find every single physics constant is found in multiple dimensions in the great pyramid and there's over 50 different writers that give all kinds of examples of these physics constants and i have never given a damn about anything I mean, all the laws, like speed of light, everything has been found in the Great Pyramid, but I've never cared about all that. To me, that was all dressing. All I cared about was that 138-period uh, sequencing that's found throughout everything. So that tells me that the Great Pyramid is designed to do something to or end or maybe it began the Phoenix phenomenon. Hmm. I mean, I definitely believe that it's a machine. That's uh, something I believe for for quite some time. I know what's his name, uh, Zawi Awas, that's been hiding all what's what's really going on in Egypt. Anyways, that's been obfuscated from the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. He's a he's such a puppet. He he he's a member of the Egyptian intelligence community. He's he's, right. he's just he's nothing. He's 
And when he call, he doesn't even know history. He's just a dumbass. That's well. That's that's the point. They put those people like him in charge of this, and they don't allow any sort of real research into it. And yeah. uh, you've got to do like you did and get digging into the old books to find anything out. Well, you know, about four months ago, I did a video called Antiquitech in the Great Pyramid. And uh, in that, that video, one? I showed pictures, illustrations from a very old book over 100 years ago where it was already known what the original passage into the Great Pyramid was and that there was a chamber connected to it and that the sh- and that the entrance to it was directly behind the chevrons that you clearly see at the front of the pyramid, even though you're told the entrance is that black square underneath it. Mm-hmm. So I did a video, showed all the stuff, showed the math. I showed, I showed where the top of the chevrons are the 24th course of masonry in the great pyramid which is perfectly even with the bottom of the grand gallery and the passage going into the queen's chamber and the queen's chamber floor so i showed all that in the video didn't think much about it i was just showing everybody pictures of of different time periods of the of the pyramid entrance where you can absolutely see there was no concrete covering that that area then you can see later there were new blocks appeared and a whole bunch of concrete, modern concrete was all put in this area. So I show all these pictures in that video and I explain to people, look, my Egyptologists have covered this up. They've added concrete. Then they come in and threw some dummy blocks in here. These blocks, there's no evidence of these blocks in earlier photos. So all these are later photos. So I showed all this and I just left it alone. I posted it on YouTube. I don't know, maybe 12,000, 17,000 people see it. I, I don't know. I forgot about the video because that's how I am. I'm compartmentalized. I moved from one, 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 one flash presentation to another. And here it is four months later. And right before I, right before I left on my trip to San Diego, about 12, 13 days ago, it, it exploded on world news, how they had discovered a new chamber, a new entrance to the Great Pyramid. They're showing his little camera going in. Zawi Hollis is now adm- admitting it's there and all that stuff. I'm, I'm disgusted. I'm like, really? Really? Not yep. one person mentioned archaics. already told you it was there. But, yep. uh, yeah, that's just, how it it's goes. Dis- it's disgusting about mm-hmm. about. Egyptology just disgusts me. Well, it's like that with any sort of mainstream um, archaeological history. You know, prehistoric history, whatever you want to call it, in uh, antiquity, everything's always primitive. They don't, the, the, you always talk about the techno- technolithic era. Um, nobody talks about that. That's the thing. Yeah. Nobody talk, you, you and very few other people talk about that. Well, I, did, I didn't invent it. It's a. Uh, right. The, it was coined by James O'Conn, and uh, he's not very well known to to people. He's never really tried to tried to be known, but he's the one that that coined technolithic, and it was necessary. I, I I'm the one that cat that basically classified different different peer, uh, pieces of architecture. The original, the most sophisticated, is technolithic. Technolithic basically means the surfaces are planed far smoother meaning the tolerances are far are far more sophisticated and higher than they needed to be mean meaning like technolithic structures are like point or point zero two five tolerance that's not necessary that's smoother than the polished marble on a bank building 
<laughs> Why were they building structures to that to that nth degree? But that's what technolithic is. And we have those at Pumapunka, at Tiwanaka. We have those at Giza. We have all throughout Giza, we find evidences that these were polished to that, to that, to that uh high sophistication. Technolithic shows that stone was being used in a technological capacity with with uh uh it's just it's just amazing. Uh, there's obvious obvious boring like Sir Flinders Petrie. He wasn't able in 1901 and 1902, 1903. He wasn't able to imagine how they were building these things. But he did put in his notes that he did not understand the technology that that was required to do the things that he saw. He saw he saw things like like a uh, fracture quarrying. He understood these these blocks were not quarried in a normal fashion. It's almost it's almost as if somebody measured out the block the way they wanted it, and then they used some type of technology that fractured that block out to the dimensions that it was wanted from the quarry. Right. So he also noticed that uh, the boring there were holes throughout the uh, many of the blocks in the Great Pyramid that the bore holes were melted smooth. He had no concept of a laser. What he thought was this must be some type of of uh, drill bit that could spin far faster than anything that could be replicated in the early 20th century. So he put all these things in his notes. It took it took engineer uh, Christopher Dunn in the 1990s to to basically explain to us in more in, in modern parlance what exactly was used to to build the great pyramid and we now know not only is the great pyramid a gigantic machine with an engineering function but it, it was built by machines itself oh yeah most definitely um yeah there's well and that's why i can see why people can attach themselves to the ancient aliens theories because you know, we've always been taught that ancient means primitive, right? Right. The the further back in time you go, the more loinclothy people get. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And copper tools. And they even have the guys on Ancient Aliens showing you, you know, or debunking ancient aliens. They'll have the ancient aliens guys come on and tell you it was aliens. And you'll have a, a normie scientist come out and be like, no, it was actually copper tools and water. And they'll show you how they'll, look, they'll like cut like a little piece of granite, you know. And But either way, they're both lying to you. Right, and yep. I can and I can see how people attach themselves to these theories or or want to believe in these theories, you know. Um, they sound, I mean, they're they're pretty fantastic, you know. They're the aliens part. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, you know what? The ancient aliens, Egyptology is very popular and is promoted by the establishment because it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Ancient aliens is very popular and is promoted by the establishment again because it's wrong. Absolutely, evidence of this. It's not just ancient aliens venues and all these different things in the, in Gaia that we got real popular, but think of this: even the History Channel pushes nothing but the ancient alien agenda now. Oh yeah, so it's a uh, yeah, it's there's no doubt. There's no there's doubt. A, the, the History Channel went through phases. Like for a while, it was like World War II history, and then it was like all the Hitler's bad shows, and then it was um, ancient aliens, and then it was. Uh, what was it the um the pawn shop guys <laughs> and duck dynasty i forgot about duck dynasty like for they go through phases where they're just like all about this one show and it's back to being ancient aliens again and those guys are those guys are very popular uh who's the guy grognak who's the guy with the giant forehead the blonde dude that's like the the new age uh, i can't remember his name oh, man 
He's just become massively popular recently again, too. But, but Jason, why, why do you think that um, that David Hatcher's children kind of got dragged into the ancient aliens thing? Because his work doesn't seem to – his books don't really suggest aliens came here. He's just pointing things out. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I've wrestled with that. It's a good question, Krognak. I've even mentioned it on my channel a few times. I don't want to denigrate David Hatcher Childress. Uh, I will always honor him for the for the books he for the research he's done. The man traveled to the very places that he wrote about. He purchased local books about those areas. He cites them numerously. His bibliographies are fantastic. Uh, he's responsible for a lot of my education on uh, the archaeology that's been that's been uncovered, excavated. Uh, I really like David Hatcher's Childress. I've read all of his books at least twice. So taking a lot of notes. And you're right. I don't remember a single a single thing in there where he promotes ancient aliens, even when he was uh, he has an extensive extensive chapter on all the like the Vimanaka or Vimanestra old Hindu and Vedic writings that that, that discuss Vimana construction, mm -hmm. pre-flight checks, how to dog how to accurate how to dog fight without getting blown out the sky. I mean, these are old ancient ancient 3000 3500 year old texts that are talking about uh, aerial uh, combat and aerial flight and even just simple things like pre-flight checks here's 60 something different things you need to do to your vimina before you take it in the air so these have been translated they're they're phenomenal but i don't even remember <laughs> in, in his vim uh, in his vimina research i don't remember him ever inferring that uh et's or extraterrestrials are there now, i believe that he was invited by those other guys to, to basically talk about, uh, because he is an authority on all these anomalies, mm -hmm. but, uh, I just, I think he got sucked into it. And then next thing you know, he's under contract. So under his contract, he, he seems to be supporting ancient aliens because he's always being cited and he's always uh, talking about all these amazing places and things. And, but I think, I think he signed a contract. It, it was, it was lucrative and, you know he's make he's making the money, but in his heart, I don't think that man believes in in the ancient alien theory. Where no, he he really seems to just say why why is this like yes, this? Yes, it's you know, this his, his favorite word though. This one why? Yeah, I love I love David Hatcher Childress. He's one of my favorites on the show. Uh, where he he may not in his heart of heart believes believe what he says or what they talk about, but like Bob Lazar fully believes what he talks about about Area Fifty One. Like that guy. That guy is fully bought into whatever programming they have fed him. Either that or he's like one of the greatest actors of all time. <laughs> I don't, you know what? I'm, I, I, I kind of pay attention to a lot of other, uh, you know, personalities. The more popular I'm becoming, the more attention I'm getting. And uh, I'm understanding that I have to guard my mouth a lot more. <laughs> I'm not self, I'm not really self censoring myself. I'm just, uh, I try to guard my opinion about others mm -hmm. a lot more because I don't want to damage somebody's credibility based off mm -hmm. uh, a half-baked opinion. I, I, my opinions need to be carry more weight. But I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that I'm gonna preface that with this. I am really not impressed with with a lot of these people who consider themselves authorities on whatever that they consider themselves authorities on. It seems to me that almost every belief system out there, I don't care if it's something ridiculous like the Galactic Federation or reading tarot cards or whatever. It doesn't matter what the idea is. It seems like almost everything out there upon greater scrutiny begins to fall apart and 
And I'm finding that there are groups of people who have basically fallen in love with the personality and not necessarily the data that they're listening. So I'm a, I have some problems with Lazar and, and, and those. And I'm, I just wonder sometimes who's funding these people. I mean, oh, there's some really large channels out there. But when I look them up and I look at their analytics, I'm like, wow, how do you have how, I don't understand how you have 685,000 subscribers, but you're not getting but 2,200 uh, views per video. I don't even understand how this is possible. Well, so, it's, yeah, it's bots. <clears throat> it's all. It's all. Well, they're all, they're all promoted. Know, they're just, algorithmically pro- promoted by YouTube and all that. They're they're the ones that yeah. they're the, the gatekeepers. That's what I'm saying. But like, but with Bob Lazar, whether. You know, I don't know. So you, do you think he honestly, do you think he believes what he talks about? Well, in order for me, in order for me to say, I believe Mr. Lazar Mm. believes what he's talking about. In order to say that I would have to, I would have to admit to myself that I believe that Mr. Lazar is capable of believing things that have no proof. Mm. I mean, Okay. Uh, and, and that's a hell of a thing for for to be asked of me because I ha- I have to I have to see farther than 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 my opinion of him. I have to see. I mean, I haven't seen any evidence of of, of ancient aliens, mm-hmm. and I used to believe it. I used to believe it. I used to read when I read all Zechariah Sitchin stuff. I was still. Oh, I did it. too. I did too. I still have his books. I have all his books. I have I have the uh, the DVD set. Of the first whatever box set of the Ancient Aliens DVDs, I used to be all into that. I was very, very much into that, and then I realized. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one on. thing that's very. I'll tell you one thing that's very damning. Hmm. Okay, in scores of books, including Zechariah Sitchin, including Eric Devon Daniken, as mentioned multiple times in presentations on Ancient Aliens. One of their prima facie evidences of ancient astronauts is the sarcophagus of Lord Pakal Votan in Central America. This gigantic sarcophagus lid shows this. They tell us that it shows this Mayan ruler, Mayan priest king, laying back in in a rocket. And the flame, and you see the flames of the rocket, and he's going up into space. Mm -hmm. And, uh... This is what they tell us, and this is ancient alien theory. But that's not what I saw when I when I when I studied that sarcophagus. I did a whole video about it, and I showed just the sarcophagus lid, and it shows a Mayan astronomer king looking through an apparatus of a phoenix that's clearly visible at the top of the, of the. Nobody can miss it once you once you, once it's once it's shown to you. You can't unsee it. This is what everybody says who's seen that video. That is a phoenix, and those flames coming off the phoenix are supporting those Mayan sigils. And all the Mayan books say those Mayan sigils are doomsday symbols, destruction symbols. They're all on the sides of the, the, sides of the sarcophagus. So this, this whole ancient alien deal, it requires cognitive leaps that are based off no evidence. It's just a visual representation that we're told means something with, with, with no proof whatsoever. When a more simplified uh, explanation is almost always found. And like, like Lord Pacal Voltan, it was certainly uh, looking for the Phoenix. 
So it has nothing to do with a rocket ship. It has not, he's, he's laying back in a chair looking through an apparatus, a telescope. So it's just crazy. The whole thing's just crazy. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just one of many examples, but that is one of their hallmarks they really like to lean oh, it's on. Definitely. That's one of the big ones. Um, and they all do it. And everybody believes it. And yeah. yeah, I mean, after a while, I mean, if they know if they know they're lying, then they're good actors, you know, um, and not even I mean, they're you know, they just really just got to repeat the same sort of things over and over again. Right. It's hey, you know what? It's a more power to them. Mm-hmm. But to me, to me, the ancient aliens deal is just pure entertainment, just like Galactic Federation deal is pure entertainment. Mm. The Pleiadians. I, I, I did <laughs> notice that several channels on YouTube kind of quietened down on the Galactic Federation stuff when I started openly criticizing that in uh, my live videos. But uh, Is the Galactic you know, Federation the Pleiadians? Yeah, the Pleiadians and the Arcturians that yeah. are hiding. There's a fleet of ships in orbit right now. They're in communication with Trump. Uh, they're helping navigate. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. right. It's like the Galactic Federation doesn't like Democrats. How do they even know about them? It's just crazy. <laughs> Oh my lord! Yeah, that's 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 awesome. Um, do you want to take a quick break, Jason? Sure. What's oh. up? All right. No, I just we'll take a break. Um, we usually take a break in an hour, and we play a song. You anything in particular you want us to play? Oh, you know what? How can you can you guys play songs without violating copyright? Yeah, we just play it on our website. Oh, okay. Listen. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing a video breaking down the absolute beautiful s- simulation theory message that is in the song Californication. Okay. Yeah, we'll play that. And we'll be back.
All right, everybody, we're back. This is still the Paranormies. We're still here talking to Jason Brashears from Archaics. Man, first hour blew right by. That was a lot of fun, Jason. Yeah, dude, it went by fast. Hell yeah. Um, all right, so we kind of we kind of brainstormed a few questions. Which one do you want to ask first, Gardner? Well, um, Jason, the book, your book that I'm on right now is Return of the Fallen Ones. And I was going through there, and I had I saw some really interesting passages. And I was just wondering if you could uh, give us a little more detail on them. On Which ones are you talking about? On one of them, when you're talking about the Anuna, uh, I'll read you the passage you wrote, or at least part of it. It says that uh, scientists discover the human brain contains trace amounts of magnetite, which explains why electromagnetic fields alter brain chemistry and experience. This is dangerous for humanity as the Anunnaki are capable of lowering their biorhythmic frequencies, allowing humans to perceive their presence. Uh, and then you go on about how, you know, of course, humans can only perceive approximately 5% of the electro uh, spec- the spectrum. So does that mean they, they, they can be invisible if they want to be? Kind of like the Predator? Like yeah. Sci-fi movie? <laughs> yes. Uh, check this out. This is that's an interesting question, and it's going to require an interesting answer. So, awesome. The book you're reading was written by me 20 years ago. I'm 49 now, but I wrote that book before I, before I was 30. So, it's a it, it, as you notice in different places in that book, I use the term Anunnaki quite frequently because that's where I was at. I just finished reading the Earth Chronicles and all that. I was already cognizant of the Phoenix and I mentioned the Phoenix in that book. And and uh um but I was still believing when I wrote that book, I was still believing in the Newtonian narrative. I was still believing that I was on a round world that was going around a sun 93 million miles distant. And I no longer believe that because when I wrote that book I had not yet adopted simulation theory and that is where my present state of understanding is today so while it doesn't change the fundaments of that book it does change some of my perspectives such as what you just read because we live in because we live in a simulated context i do believe it is it is very very easy to alter our perception of the world around us and if there are intelligences that move in and out of this holography they can do it by not 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 doing any changes to themselves but changing our ability to perceive them hmm that, that's interesting that makes a lot of sense now does this mean that they they come you do you think they mingle among us once in a while, like the, the mythos of the fairies and such, and that they just turn invisible when they want to not be seen. Is that what that could imply? You know what? We're going to use one example. That's very popular to everyone because Bigfoot is basically the hide and seek champion. Yes. Bigfoot is too well documented. The footprints have been seen and photographed and measured. They have been They have been scientifically analyzed hundreds of books about the Yeti the abominable snowman, the Sasquatch, the Snowwalker, the the Bigfoot. It's the same all, all around the world. We even have a historical reference found in the Book of Jasher dating a Bigfoot being slain in a cave that was killing local goats by a hero named Zepho in Italia in the Kingdom of Latinum long before long before Rome. So this uh 
the very fact that hunting dogs have never been able to to find a Sasquatch automatically tells me because they can find a prisoner real quick, no matter what what that prisoner does. Mm-hmm. Switchbacks and going through going through uh, rivers and climbing up trees and and climbing climbing over branches of other trees and descending a trunk nearby and continue on the journey. Listen, you can't throw off those descent on those dogs. So the very fact that we have never captured a live Yeti and yet they're so well documented and seen tells me that we have some type of, of, I don't want to sound too twilight zone by saying interdimensional, but we have some type of frequency based activity that can phase out beyond the 5.5% of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can sense. We are very, very restricted as humans. So that's the best way I can answer that. I Yes, I believe Big, Bigfoots are, are have been found. I believe Bigfoots have abducted humans before in national parks. I believe that they are transdimensional. I believe that they are able to traverse between mathematical constructs, and we cannot. That's what I've always said. There, <clears throat> it's like the old. Uh, remember the Six Million Dollar Man show from way back in the day, and they had like a, yeah. a Bigfoot. There was a Bigfoot appearance, and he used to phase in and out. And that was his deal. He phased in and out of their reality. That was, that's the only way. That's the only way that could be possible. Yep. I can't. I cannot dismiss the thousands of accounts of people who put their reputations on the line mm-hmm. to tell to tell a story of what they saw and what they smelled and especially when it comes with physical evidence of broken branches or broken twigs with giant with with these huge uh uh footprints mm-hmm. yeah it's just it's it's too prevalent yeah we're we're dealing we're dealing we're dealing with with something that to us manifests as a, as a eight to nine foot tall hairy, hairy anthropoid, and yet it may be far more intelligent than us. And, but what it can do is jump constructs. It can get it can well, right when we get close to it, right when the dogs get the scent, it can run into a cave, and then it can do whatever it does, and it phases completely out out of our mathematics. <laughs> it's got its own little pocket, little, little pocket. Uh, transporter <laughs> well uh jason another question i wanted to ask you as far as cryptids are concerned because you're here in paranormies <laughs> in the same book in return of the fallen ones at uh 559 bc you talk about king nebuchadnezzar the second of babylon yeah and that he was cursed and he was cursed with lycanthropy yes can you go into that a little um all I can do is basically cite cite the text and the Talmudic Jewish traditions on what really occurred. And just like vampirism it was believed to be a thing in the Middle Ages and all that, lycanthropy was believed to be a thing thousands of years ago. Lycanthropy is that humans have this inner beast and that civilization tames it. And this inner this inner beast is like demonic and it can come out and do physical changes to the human body. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he was cursed and, and the curse, the curse was lycanthropy. He basically took on the very forms of a humanoid wolf. 
He he was even on all fours. Oh, uh, there's a site. There are there are insane asylums that have records that have talked about this condition where people have believed they have turned into a dog, a hyena, a dingo, or a wolf, and they assume the characteristics and they're studied by by doctors and they even perform things as best they can in human form that those animals do in their natural habitats. That's all. So remember, remember, species is nothing but coding. We're humans because we're coded to the max. But a deer is a deer. The only difference between a deer and a moose is programming. So if if we live in a mathematical construct, it would be very, very easy to just alter enough programming to where a physical being begins to act like uh, and take on the characteristics of another physical being, another mammal, but but which is very different and even assume its behavioral behavior, you know, its habits and stuff. So. Yeah, it's this, this is not a mystery to me, but I believe that Nebuchadnezzar for seven years suffered lycanthropy and that the Babylonian nobility, especially with with the fall of Assyria and the rise of Medo-Persia, they were not going to let it be known to the public that that, that the monarch of uh, of Babylonia had had something had bad happened. So they sequestered him for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, he snapped out of it and remembered everything that who who he was and all that. This is the story we have in the biblical narrative and in the Talmud. And uh, that's 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 the closest approximation to an answer that I can give that the condition that he suffered was lycanthropy and it was purely psychological, which means the program programming was just altered. Hmm. That's so, interesting. That sounds almost like Jekyll and Hyde or something. Yeah, it does. It really does. But he didn't actually like physically transform. Well, there would, there would be changes. There would be a thickening, like the, the human, the human body can change fun, uh, a lot, a lot. Let me explain. Like a wild boar almost. Oh, uh, well, when it comes, when it comes to humans, your, your altitude above sea level air pressure has a lot to do with how, how your body develops. Um, you, the older you are, the more ephesial cartilage builds up on your bones and stuff. He could have, he could, his bone structure could have changed to a degree. Knuckles got bigger. Fingers got a little bit longer. Mm. Uh, his canines in his jaw, in his upper, in his upper, uh, jaw could have, could have elongated a little bit more. Uh, his eyes could have dilated and, and grown larger. His, his, uh, his nostrils could have flared. All of these would just be very, very slight. Uh, bodily changes, but we're, I mean, we're, we're dealing with DNA. DNA is pure 100% coding. It doesn't matter that we can't associate it to the circuit board type coding that we're familiar with because that's just a frame of reference. But DNA is absolute coding and it can be modified. It can be changed and very, very, very slight changes in one's DNA can affect great physical alterations. So there is nothing astonishing to me about uh, the the medical condition of lycanthropy. Uh, I believe that they would they could even grow even more hair. They, they, they would when they absolutely believe they are a wolf, then the physical body will commiserate. Ah, wow, that's pretty. Okay, yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, um, um, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that King Nebuchadnezzar turned into a wolf. Right, I'm right. Saying, I'm saying that in a in a I'm saying that sequestered for seven years in some type of chamber where they fed him where they fed him animals and raw meats. I'm saying that at butt ass naked he would have he would have, have assumed the traits of, of a wild wolf, and 
in that assumption, he would have also adopted some of that physicality. There would have been changes in the body over a period of months to where even people would look at him like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that was once Nebuchadnezzar. So, yeah, uh, that's all. That, that's all I'm saying. I'm saying the changes are real. They can happen. They happen over time. And it's because he truly believed he, he was a wolf. Mm. Well, it's kind of like my other theory about Bigfoot it was just a guy who got sick and tired of everything and just walked off into the woods and just morphed back into nature. He was just sick of it all. And I know I don't know much about him, but I know he's the hide and seek champion. That's right. If Brad were here, he'd have something dirty to say. Right, Grogner? <laughs> Probably. No. Yeah. No, um since we're we're still talking about the Anuna a little, Jason. All right. And um you were talking about them running some of their own simulations to discover things. How do you think they did that? Is that something almost like like Assassin's Creed, like they go into Animus and they would experience their own holographic. Well, I've never, I've never seen Assassin's Creed, so I don't know your frame of reference. But so it, in in that they have, um, it's almost like a med bed type of system that they lay down on, and what it would do is access memories that are ep- epigenetic, tied to your DNA. I don't know if that's something they would have done, but would it be something similar to that? The simulations they did. Well, or do you think they were all just like math protocols and computers? What type of simulations did you mean? Okay, well, I'm 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 of the opinion that what we have, the representations we have in the ancient Near East of this tablet, this tablet of destinies that several of the, of the Anunnaki are seen holding, uh, which sometimes is represented as a bag that they're holding. This bag contains this uh uh this tablet. These, tab- these tablets were of great fascination to the ancient world because they knew that the Anuna could hold up the tablet and the tablet would show them pictures. It would speak to them. They could talk to their god. They could talk to their commanders. They could talk to their children. They could give commands to other Anuna far away. They could they could speak into these tablets and these tablets of destinies with the words that were spoken to the tablet would cause inanimate objects to move and, and like iron dragons would be forced to move. Stone monuments would levitate and, and be carried at great distances. And what it is, is this is a primitive frame of reference for a people who had no idea what a technologically sophisticated infrastructure entails trying to describe the very things that their forefathers had watched. They had watched these great machines build things and they watched that, 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 that carriages or, or big vehicles that had nobody inside of them could be, could be controlled by somebody holding one of these tablets. And they knew that all information was, was on the tablet. There was nothing that could not be known. It could always be pulled up on these tablets, just like our cell phones today. So after the passage, after the cataclysm occurred and that infrastructure had vanished and disappeared from which they did computer simulations, they did all these things, the survivors of those who had been in contact with the Anuna, remember that, listen, if we want to be smart like the gods and we want the gods to come back, then we need to preserve our information on tablets too. This is why we have half a million cuneiform clay burned tablets spread throughout about 18 libraries in Near Eastern cities. There's probably a lot more that just haven't been excavated yet. But the first mode of communication to to the ancient world and it lasted for almost 15 century was to record everything from taxes ship manifests uh trade uh uh different trade exchanges barter system t- uh tithes to the temple 
um, uh, all the epics and cosmo cosmologies, all these things were recorded on tablets. And this was in mimicry of the old Anuna holding this device called the Tablet of Destinies that could do everything. It's almost as if the people of the Sumerians, Akkadians, uh, Rashamran, Ugarit, the people of Assyria and Babylonia, it's almost as if they're describing the far future when we're on our cell phones and tablets instead of the far past. Right. So it's just them on their iPads, just like us. It's yeah, us. I, it, it's us, I, but a different version. Yeah, I believe they had tablets and they had computers mm -hmm. and they were running simulations and and uh, they, I'm, I, there is no mystery. This is, I know it stresses some people out to here because they really want this romanticized version of history, and I'm not buying into it anymore. <laughs> I used to. It's a, uh, but I see, I, I see that Johnny Monoxide and Grognak and Jason could have existed five thousand years ago on our technological devices, and we could have been controlling machines. We could have built the Great Pyramid, just the three of us, based off the the very advanced, sophisticated template that was delivered to us uh, by an email attachment in a, in one of our tablets. And as the three of us worked to work together for about 15 years, but the three of us were actually controlling 60 or 70 gigantic tractors that were doing all the work. Right. Just like, yeah, it's just like I do now, but instead of electricians, it's giant machines. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, but you know, we just, we've, things, we've, we've come, have, we have evidence of this. I mean, it's not like I'm just talking out of my ass. Right. No, no, definitely. Cool. Like technolithic is definitely a thing. These things were built by machines. These machines, this machine that is the great pyramid, um, was built by machines. And then after some sort of a reset, when man tried to maybe with, like you said, like with Antiquitech, tried to build things similar, uh, the quality or the uh, technology of every subsequent pyramid goes down. Is that, isn't that correct? Yeah, I agree. So, so like, yeah, definitely. Like the original machine was built by a machine. And you even said in one of your videos that there are some stones that have uh, fibers in, in the middle of the stones. So these were definitely like poured stones, which are poured by and put into place by some machine. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's not only that, but there, there have been like trace, trace elements of burial uh, of barrel, which hardened stone, semi-precious stone that's grounded in fine powder mm. and mixed among the silicates uh, among the limestone. Uh, the magnetite is often found in disarray, which would have never happened in nature that way. Uh, yeah, it's just it, there's a lot of evidence that the individual blocks of the Great Pyramid were fracture quarried in, in, in huge chunks, transported somewhere where they were liquefied and in a liquefied heated state. Maybe it might have been cold liquefi liquefaction. I don't know. But but in a liquefied state, they had mixed among them these these trace elements that have been found and located, in, in, which is not in natural limestone, these hardeners and um. And then they and then they were very rapidly cooled, and we know that ra that cooling was extremely rapid because the magnetite did not have time to all align to magnetic north, and uh, and it's just it's all in disarray, pointing in different directions. So I, I believe these things were are left as clues for us in a far future date to understand. It, man, we had technology in the past. That's mm. so, all. Uh, yeah, I don't believe the past is is nearly as nefarious as 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 we've been led to believe or suspect. I believe that humans, just like you and I, did all of this. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jason, that actually brings up uh, a topic I really wanted to get to with you. One of the things we're asked about a lot is Atlantis. 
And since we're kind of de-romanticizing history, do you mind uh, <laughs> setting the record straight on Atlantis real quick? Sure. Um, Solon was told by the priests of Sace that that uh, the civilization existed. You know the story of Plato. Plato. Can, I'm sorry about that. That's my tablet. The Plato. The Plato can conveyed all this and the idea of Atlantis does not offend me at all. I'm very, I'm on board with it. As a matter of fact, there are many ancient, oh my God, this thing won't shut up. <laughs> so this thing hasn't beeped all day. So anyway, there's a, let me put it down here. <clears throat> the problem, my problem is the chronology. There are too many ancient Greek writers. Eudoxus is just one of them that mentions almost Diodorus Siculus and Strabo, but there's too many references in the, in 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 old historical records that I don't know what's going on with this guy. Let me let me turn this tablet off. This didn't, this hasn't made a sound all day. I thought I had my settings off. Oh, you're good, man. I'm gonna turn this tablet off. Do what you gotta do. Technology isn't technology great. <laughs> crazy just more power just more evidence i'm being listened to yeah all right i turned it off anyway uh my my issue is the chronology because i believe the civilization of atlantis is attached to another historical narrative for which we have a tremendous amount of historical and archaeological evidence and this is the sea people's federation so the uh the, the Atlantis story is of a people that were known through the trade routes of the Mediterranean, but they knew they were way out in the West Sea. They just didn't know how far. They, so they speculated. They said they were on an island. They said they didn't know. But the ATL preface of, of Atlantis, this, a, this ATL and sometimes ATLN, this is found in numerous places in Central America. And we know at that time period, there was vast civilizations throughout Mexico, Central America, Veracruz State, all the way into northern, uh, the northern third of South America. It, additionally, these feathered plumes that these warriors wore in, in, in the Americas is identical to what is shown in ancient Egyptian and Libyan representations of, of the Sea Peoples Federation that came and overrun the Mediterranean, Mediterranean area. And they did this during the Proto-Greek period. And this is, this is absolutely necessary in understanding the narrative of Atlantis because the 9,500 BC narrative promoted by Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, and so many others is absolutely anachronistic because it could have never occurred because the Egyptians were never at war with the Greeks at 9,500 BC. It would have been impossible. But in the 13th century BC, not only was it possible, we have the historical documents of just that war. So, and the reason we can abbreviate it to the 13th century BC is because Solon was never told by the Egyptian uh, uh, the Egyptian priest at Sice. He was never told that it was 9,000 years before that date. That's not how the Egyptians dated anything. And this is where you enter in Strabo, Diodorus, Siculus, and Herodotus, uh, not, not Herodotus, but Eudoxus. Eudoxus was a critic of Plato. It wasn't 9,000 years. It was 9,000 lunations, which is exactly how the Egyptian system worked. This is why the Egyptians have these almost impossible dates. This, this event happened in four, 
fall 48,000 lunations. This event was 1,570 lunations. They did not measure in years. The year had no significance to the ancient Egyptians. They're a lunar-based based, uh uh, calendars. When you take all these impossible long dates and abbreviate them down to what the Egyptians counted, you get the 13th century BC, which is exactly when there was major cataclysms going on and a huge war involving the Greeks being eradicated by the Sea People's Federation. The Sea People's Federation, which would have been the Atlanteans, Coming from the Atlantic, they had come in. They had came in and invaded Egypt twice. Everything about the narrative of Plato is absolutely correct. It is the chronology that is wrong. Hmm. So, what wouldn't the Sea Peoples be the Phoenicians, though? They were just one branch of them. Okay. Yes, and the Phoenicians. The Phone. This is this is one of the tenets of my channel. The Phoenicians mm-hmm. are a branch are a branch that came from the Americas. Hmm. In the Americas that already had like civilization and buildings and stuff. Oh yeah, I, right. oh yeah. The pyramid, the pyramid cities and uh, the stone cities and pyramid cities of the Americas dated at the 13th, 12th, and 11th century BC were far more sophisticated than anything that has been found in the Near East. And that's what we were talking about, which would be in the Southwest. That's all like melted rock now, right? Well, a lot of it. Well, Veracruz. Uh, Veracruz State, the cities of the Olmecs, these these were very advanced. You know the the cities with the giant faces, the giant mm-hmm. heads. You seen those? Yeah, we we did a show. <clears throat> excuse me, we did a show on the Olmecs a while back. They were what, up in like Minnesota or something up that way. <laughs> no, the old, the Olmecs were in Veracruz State, Central America. Oh wait, uh, who is it? Who they the filled people? up the Yucatan. There's no, like, who were the people that were doing the mining, the, the copper mining? You're, yeah, you're talking know. about the mound builders, right? Okay, I'm thinking of somebody. Yes, okay. the mound the mound builders of the Ohio Valley. Yeah, that was a whole. That was a uh, those those just might have been the ancestors of what later became the Toltec, and then the Toltec the Toltec uh, kind of collapsed, and the survivors of the Toltecs became the Aztecs. Both the Toltec and the Aztec maintained traditions that they had migrated to Mexico from the north because of a cataclysm. Hmm. Well, there you go. Um, one question that I had. Um, now, you talk about the uh, Neanderthal being a, um, a genetic experiment. Yes. Right. I do. So, but Cro-Magnon <clears throat> was not like one of our like so neanderthal is not really one of our ancestors but cro-magnon is well i mean even the geneticists know that, ne- that we have we have almost virtually no connection to neanderthal but we have a like 99% compa- compatibility with ne- with cro-magnon magnum uh, from magdalenian cro-magnon all the branches of cro-magnon mm-hmm. uh we're very we're very genetically related to but not neanderthal neanderthal was, neanderthal was something very very different there's like there's like 1.1 or 1.5 percent uh uh average ability of compatibility between modern humans and neanderthal right and then you get 23 and me starts uh quote looking for it and showing you how many neanderthal variants you have and people are all excited about it it's kind of weird. No, they're, it's weird all they're doing is all they're doing is promoting uniformitarianism. They're trying to always show that mm. in every element uh, of of history that evolution, natural selection is all true. Because the 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 existence of Neanderthals is a problem for for natural selection. It is a problem for uh, this whole uniformitarian idea that everything developed over millions of years and all mm. that. 
And the reason it's a problem is because Neanderthal was a expert. He's an expert killer. He's an expert hunter. This is a human with almost ape-like strength, long arms, the ability to run for long periods of time. There's Cro-Magnon would have never been able to survive in a in a Neanderthal world. Cro-Magnon are very tall humans with long skulls and very short arms and very petite women. The average Cro-Magnon male was six foot to six foot eight, and his and his woman was four foot nine to five foot two. This is the hmm. average height of the Cro-Magnon. This race is absolute proof of a sedentary race. A sedentary race meaning one of great sophistication. They're over a long period of time, their arms got shorter, there was no need for it, the skull elongated, more 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 mental thinking capacity, and because it's a sedentary race, meaning it lived in the underworld for a very long period of time, or on the surface world in very protected cities for a long period of time, it would have been required for the women to become more and more and more petite and beautiful, but the men get larger and larger, but their mm. arms are, are almost disproportionately short. There's just the opposite of Neanderthal. It's so, very odd. The collapse of the Cro-Magnon, they, were, they, were, they, they coexisted, and we know they coexist. There's a lot of overlap. So the reason we know, we know this is because the collapse of the Cro-Magnon is is noticeable all around the Mediterranean. Something happened around southern Europe and northern Africa and the Levant area that collapsed Cro-Magnon uh, civilization. We know that it was a collapse because of what we find in their in their graves. We still find the evidence of technological sophistication, although it's been some time. What, and what I mean is the manufacture of needles, the manufacture of textiles with weaves that we cannot do today. We find button-down pants with belt loops for belts. We find tassels around the. Uh, uh, we're talking about pants. Now, people mm. think pants are a recent invention of the Celts in the days of Augustus Caesar because this is what our history books say, but it's not true. Pants have been found in Cro-Magnon uh, uh, graves. The skeletons are wearing actual pants that are very similar to our Levi's jeans today. So the women were wearing dresses. They looked A Cro-Magnon man and woman would not have looked out of place today. Hmm. These are bearded Caucasians, and the women were, had no hair on their faces. Is that they would look very, very they would have, they would have fit in in Texas just fine. Large okay. dude, petite, petite, beautiful woman, they okay. would have fit in just fine. But we big know Germanic that, looking guy. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. But yeah. we know they would we know that they coexisted with Neanderthal because a series of scientific discoveries that were widely reported hit basically hit all the peer reviewed. Uh, uh, websites about six years ago when it was reported that Neanderthal campsites have been found with whole bone middens full of, of Cro-Magnon bones. So we have a very primitive hunter, hunter group that's now hunting Cro-Magnons and thriving as they do it. And the only way this would have happened is if the Cro-Magnons had lost their infrastructure. Now, Jason, in the story of the Bible, we have Cain fearing being uh, thrown out of the walled enclosure, it sounds like. And is Neanderthal what he's afraid of? Yeah, I, I believe so. Not, not not just Neanderthal, but we, we even have a, we have a lot of evidence that there was another race here 
that had six fingers on their hands, six, six toes, and long, elongated skulls. But other than that, they were basically peaceful. They were living as Neolithic, but they were masterwork basket makers. And evidence of this civilization is found all across North America. Were they the uh, the double row of teeth, red-headed giants? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. Gotcha. The ones from uh, the Lovelock Cave in... in uh... They made duck decoys and whatever. That's where they found all that stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, an, that's another example. The one I was thinking of, though, was the one where the FBI came in and strip searched all the archaeologists and then escorted them off the premises and then tagged and boxed all the artifacts and left. Man, that's <laughs> that's so many times. I mean, many such cases. We we often joke about how, you know, the uh, the warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's like just a giant warehouse full of brown boxes with numbers on the side. Where they just where they just put all of the things that they've confiscated. Oh yeah, I believe I believe. I mean, I would take that belief a little further. I would I believe that something like that would 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 be split up into four or five different subterranean. Oh, uh, for sure, for sure. Repositories. Yeah, but that's like on the one medium. of your uh, recent videos on the Native Americans. You mentioned that the Native Americans, especially from Nova Scotia down on the East Coast, that they had more of a direct. Uh, they were more direct descendants of an older race. Did I get that right? Someone on Telegram wanted me to ask you a question concerning uh, the Native Americans on the East Coast. Well, you're talking about the East Coast, Northeast Coast. Well, that would be Algonquin groups. There's, there's Algonquin. Yeah, they're. I don't know how to pronounce it, but you, you do. <laughs> yeah, we just call them Algonquin here. Yeah, that's, that's many, many different families. And yeah, they have a common. They they definitely have a common ancestor. But well, we have to we have to unless we're going to accept that the primary core beliefs of a family of peoples that all mirror each other is an import, then we're going to have to accept that maybe it's a common origin because importing importing beliefs and then and then these imported beliefs have so many different variants that add details to the original that's a lot more difficult to believe than just the fact that all these people had common ancestry and this is and, and that the memories would shift and there would be cultural attachments that would affix to different ideas about what had happened in the ancient times. And this is why the Algonquin families or Algonquin, however you pronounce it, oh, they basically have all these same exact beliefs as found in the Sumerian and in Babylonian Akkadian texts. Mm. So we have the belief in the flood, the belief in giants. We have belief in one universal language, one universal God, later translated as the great spirit, a great, great spirit. We have the original writings being conveyed in quipus, in ropes, and in totems, and in pillars. Oh, this is where the totem pole came from. All these are originally, originally Sumerian concepts. So we have, uh, we have too many things too many ideas about the unfolding of chronological events in history in the Native American traditions that absolutely mirror the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Atrahasis Epic and the the, uh, Karsag tablets. It doesn't make any sense unless the Native Americans were actually descended from a civilization that maintained the same histories as the civilizations of Europe, the Mediterranean, Africa, and Asia. Then nothing else would make sense unless... The only, the only, only other possible explanation, which we would have to find evidence of, is some type of ancient mariner race 
that was spreading a worldwide syllabus to all peoples. And did, did the Druids tie into that? We on St. Patrick's Day we touched on the Druids a little. Well, the Druids the Druids had the book of the books of Feralt. We don't have the books of Feralt anymore, but the Druids had had once boasted of being in possession of the books of Feralt, which was a library that existed before the flood. Uh, the, the 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 Druids had a flood tradition. They had traditions of the of the ancient stone giants. Uh, the Druids the Druids uh. I mean, the Druids were 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 the they were the old priests that that were absorbed into the Celtic Celtic society. I mean, a lot of people don't know this. The Druids were never Celt. They were initially not Celts. The Celts moved into the area and basically overrun overrun the area. But the but the Druids themselves were an older branch of priests, maybe of Iberian stock, because the Iberian the Iberian. Uh, uh, populations were in Europe and the United Kingdom long before the the Celts and the Angles and the Jutes and the Burgundians and the and the Vikings and all them moved in the ancient Britons, but the Iberian stock people had had this this cult of the Dru, the cult of the oak priest, and so when the Celts moved in, they had, they had saw these men were like extraordinarily wise. Uh, they were honored by the locals, which the Vikings called them scralings and and. And they're just Iberian stock people, very short, very, very short statured people with dark hair, dark eyes, but they weren't black. They, they had kind of, kind of not, not almost I want to say almost like a grayish tone to their color. They're like the descendants of malnourished uh, Neanderthals. Hmm. Yeah. We, we did a lot of, um, of, um, ancient Irish, uh, theorization of this you know the uh, roots of civilization or whatever and um the druids yeah what were the what were the druids before they weren't the, you said they weren't celts but what was what was um the tuatha de danon weren't they descendants of the tuatha de danon supposedly I, I don't know where anybody would would uh be able to find an old source for that mm-hmm. i mean i can't say that they weren't but i know the the Tuatha de Danon in their own, like Annals of Clomagnoi, in their own tradition, in the old ancient Irish, like the Book of the Four Masters, the origin of the Tuatha de Danon was actually Ireland. They had left for a long period of time. And when the fleets returned, they found that another race called the Fomori or Furbolgs had, had taken possession of the island in their absence. But their absence was for a long time. Mm. So when they came, they fought in the first battle of Moitur and they got their asses handed to them and the, and the Danon couldn't take the coast. So they waited in the second battle of Moitur. They waited for a phenomenon for which they knew was going to happen. This is the Phoenix phenomenon. They dated it precisely. And in, in, in the month of May, they, they, they landed their fleets and they attacked at a place called the Field of Towers. And this translates to, to Mo, Moitura. And, uh, in the ba- in the second battle of Moitura, the sun darkened as anticipated. The Phoenix ph- phenomenon happened. The world shook, and the f- the defending Fomori were terrified because they thought it was the priests that were disembarking the ships of the Tuatha Dé Danann that were causing the phenomenon mm. to occur. So they they got they got beaten they got beaten the battle and then they surrendered the island. Wasn't there a point where um where uh, Spain and like that whole Iberian Peninsula and Ireland were connected? Isn't that part of the, and that's how the Ibernian theory or something? I don't remember. This, see, we've st- we've gone back and forth between so many different theories on these ancient um, 
civilization well, sometimes. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about what you're talking about. Uh, I could be talking about a land bridge between Africa and, and Europe. No, not Africa and Europe between Ireland and like the Iber- Iberian Peninsula. Well, you it know, in the all, Welsh like, triad, the ancient Welsh poems, uh, in the old Welsh chronicles, mm-hmm. we have, we have it recorded by the Welsh that there was, that there was a vast land mass attached to, uh, ancient Britain that one day just sank into the sea. And, uh, that's probably what I'm talking about. Then. The British Isles are much smaller today than they used to be. Yeah, that is likely what I what I was referring to. Then, if that makes sense, okay. Um, but that would make sense that uh, that the the Druids would come from that that area. Then, if there was if there was at one point a land bridge, well, I'm, I'm open to the possibility of the Druids having even come from Canaan, and mm. because the the similarity the similarities in, in the uh, so first of all, the Canaanites? original Hebrew Jubilee was based off the acorn. The acorn does not drop from an oak tree until its fiftieth year. So uh, there's a lot of similarities between the beliefs in Balaam and the groves, and the ancient in 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 uh, uh, so many different Celtic te- Celtic deities that have the Dagda preface in there that comes from Dagdon of ancient Can- Dagon of ancient Canaan and the one-eyed god. And there's so many similarities between the Canaanites, which were Phoenicians, and the Canaanites and the Druids that that I could definitely get on board with any research out there that makes a connection that the that the the Druids were actually uh basically a priestly line that had come from the oak worshipping uh, Canaanites that basically basically worship Balaam in the groves. The groves hmm. were oak groves, and they, and all their chronologies were based off forty nine and fifty year periods called jubilees. Hmm. Well, that does make sense when you, when you look at it that way. <clears throat> hey, uh, Jason, you go over a lot of different symbols in your books, especially ones used by you know modern um, religions today. Where do you think the symbol of the cross comes from? Do you think it has anything to do with the 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 planets' rotations around the two stars? The day star and the night star. You know, the, you said the planets have overlapping yeah. patterns. Yeah. You ever think it was a symbol for that? Or, or if you have any other ideas, I know symbols have a lot of different meanings yeah, behind well, them. The cross, the cross is a hard one because its applications are are infinite the, every culture has had some some variant of the cross and and, and all, they often have a lot of crossover no pun intended but it's they do have crossover <laughs> where it means the same thing in multiple different cultures and then you'll find in some cultures it means something totally different uh, the the greatest amount of correlates involving a cross always attach it to the idea of the sun so i don't know beyond that i mean that's why jesus was called the son of righteousness uh, arising with healing in his wings and all these different ancient gods were associated to the sun. I do not believe that the cross was a symbol of import during the vapor canopy. I believe it was the collapse of the vapor canopy and the, in the first appearance of the sun in the sky, which began all the old American sun calendars, which began a whole new Sumerian pantheon. All the old gods of the Sumerians were still there, but the Sumerians were forced to invent another God. That God is called Utu. 
is the Utu is the sun. The sun is the very last god to appear in the Sumerian pantheon. This was copied in Babylon. The last god to enter the Babylonian pantheon was Shamash. This is why this god is often called Utu Shamash in honor of his Sumerian origin. This is why in ancient Egypt, the, the, the Aeneid was already ancient. The, the Egyptian gods were already old when all of a sudden Horus came onto the picture. He's the last of the gods introduced into the Egyptian pantheon. He represents the sun. Mm-hmm. This is because the sky fell. This is the great flood. It, it, is, <clears throat> it is the collapse of the vapor canopy. And in the ancient Americas, it was the first sun, which was called the water sun. And I don't believe that the symbol of the cross has any significance prior to this this event. But after this event, with the appearance of, of the sun, yeah, now now I'm open to the idea that the that the initial purpose of the symbol of the cross was to mark a new phenomenon that began to occur that was not noticed in the vapor canopy world. And that is this procession of the equinox and this creation of a four-point year. Because the year wasn't documented during the vapor canopy. It was a day ca- All the calendars were day count systems. That's why the Mayan system, the Olmec, the Quiche, that's why the ancient, the ancient Vedic Sumerian, they only counted days. They did not count years. With the appearance of the sun and the collapse of the vapor canopy, it's no longer a lunar star-based system, so they're now counting years. And in, in, in the counting of years, you have to separate it into four parts called equinoxes and solstices. And there you go. I mean, that's and that's how we have it today. <laughs> We're still doing it that way. Um, sort of, right? They keep messing with us with daylight savings time. And Do you, do you mind cleaning up one more uh, religious for us oh i can try so there's okay great <laughs> i i kind of know the answer to this one but i know a lot of our listeners don't i know it has a lot to do with the anuna the 666 i know 600 is the ner can you explain how the 666 became the number of the beast and well, that would, that what would, it really means yeah that would be the roman catholic church they did that they they, they, <laughs> they did the 666 the the initial the very oldest the oldest biblical manuscript and the oldest references to the number of the beast was 616 it was a palindrome 666 was introduced by the church because they wanted to associate nero uh, Nero was the was a horrific Roman emperor who went to war against Christianity, and he and the Roman Church wanted to paint this historical narrative that Nero was uh, basically invested with the spirit of Antichrist, and uh, yeah, but because Nero's name equals six 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 in in the Roman numerology, and the Roman Catholic Church had many people they wanted to demonize. And they did this by by this simple gematria of using 666. 616 would have never worked. But when it comes to the book, the oldest copy of the book of Revelation known, that's what the number of the beast was. It was 616. 666 was a later invention. And there you go. And they've applied it to so many things. The number of man, uh, you know, with the carbon 12 and all that. Right? That's crazy. They've added all kinds of, quote, esoteric stuff to it. Now, are, with the 666 years, there's events every 60 years. Are there also events tied to the Anuna every six years? I don't know because every 600 years, yes, we have those calendars. We have so many references to the 600-year period. And 
60 years as well. In the, in the Sumerian text, in the ancient Dragon King Chronicles of China, the 60-year period was, was a generation of the gods. They're, they're very similar. Uh, there are many calendars from the old world that measured things in 60-year periods. So, and in 10 of those, 10 of those 60-year periods is, of course, 600 years. But we even have something at, to add to that. We have references in the Sumerian and Akkadian text that the gods only had a small 60-year window by which they could, they could perform their will on the world before they could do things on earth. Mm. So... This I find interesting, and the reason I find it interesting is because the entire period of the Nemesis X object, some people call it Nibiru, Nibiru is 792 years, but 732 years of that is at Aphelion, meaning it's very, very far away and unseen. But for 60 years of that 792-year period, this object is very close to Earth. It is visible. It's right here. And it's during these 60-year periods where really unusual things happen in our world. And, and, and this is a, I document these on my, on, on my channel in the Anuna files, showing how great events in world history, very destructive events happen during those 60-year windows. All right. I don't. I don't want to buy into the six-year part. I tried to look at, at history uh, every six years, but it becomes more and more arbitrary. One of my published books, I went into the to to the six hundred, the sixty, and then I, I even broke events down in six-year periods. But it becomes too arbitrary because now I'm looking at years and I'm just cherry picking whatever happens every six years. It's uh, it's it's too much. One out of six is too much, but one out of sixty is not, and one out of six hundred certainly isn't. Hmm. All right. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. Yes. He cleared up a few things. You can't make him clear everything <laughs> up, Grognak. He's got to have more stuff to come back for. Uh, Jason, thanks for coming on again, man. This was this is awesome. Uh, we're coming to the end of the second hour, man. These hours just blow by. Holy cow. Yeah, that's all. You know what? You guys, did y'all post me, post a link to your last... Uh, to our, our last podcast together, did you guys post a link to uh, the podcast where I can just post it on YouTube and send everybody there? Yeah, I will. If I didn't, I'm pretty sure I did, but I'll do it again. Well, look, do me do me a favor. I have so many new subs since we started talking. Uh, why don't you post me a link to all three shows we've done together, and I will introduce you guys. Here's a paranormies to talk to them. This is my third time. And, and I'll post all three links and because I got a lot of people who are trying to see everything I do off because I don't post uh, a, a lot of these podcasts I do. I do not post on my channel. I just leave it on the channel. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Man. I'll get so you that. Then, I'll get you that over today. Yeah. Cool. Send that to me today and I'll I'll post them all together when you're ready for this. Whenever you post this this show right here, I will post the whole list. Right. Hey, and, and we're we're ready to do all the stuff you want to do off YouTube. If you want to talk about something you don't want to post on YouTube, yeah, we're we're already not yeah, allowed yeah. there. Yeah, the <laughs> we're already not welcome on YouTube. So yeah, well, in the coming month, we'll be we'll be putting this whole archaics.tv together in these three channels. And yeah, I will definitely get you guys on. And, and yeah, we'll uh, because yeah, that's man. one of one of the channels is going to be archaics uncensored. Another one, another one is going to be archaics on the road, uh, van vlog mobile. And nice. the other channel, the other channel is going to be archaics hot mic. So, 
Oh, yeah, we've got all these plans, and I'll, I'll certainly, yeah, we can, we can do several shows on the Archaics Uncensored. Awesome. Looking forward to it, man. Well, thanks for coming on. All righty. All right, talk to you soon, brother. Yeah, thanks a lot. Hey, congratulations on 100. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Congratulations on your 100,000 subs. Guys, that was, that was beyond synchronicity to be, after 23 years, to be at the bookstore with Paul Tice doing a video for YouTube at the same hour I hit 100,000 subs. That wow. was so crazy. Very cool, man. Yeah. But we, cool. went, we went out to dinner on that one. Awesome. Yeah, you have to. You have to. Crazy. <laughs> right on, All right, bro. guys. All right, we'll talk Just to you soon. Send me the links whenever you're ready. Will do. All right. Oh, man. Wow, that was shares. Fun. That was awesome. Every, every time he comes around, every time he comes around, dude. It's it's like mind blowing, and I just sit there like, uh, and he says something, and I'm like, okay, document, remember that, remember that, remember that. Oh, he said something else. Uh, I can't remember the other one. His memory is amazing. Um, his his ability to recall information, I'm like, a, oh yeah. yeah, not just like stories, but he's mm-hmm. got all the numbers, man. When you mm-hmm. can when you can jam all the numbers and dates on things, that's when it's like really impressive, you know? Yes, absolutely, man. It's crazy. Um, I'm not good with I'm not good with dates. <laughs> I'm not either. I mean, I remember a lot of things. I I misremember things all the time. I'm not gonna lie, but I do remember a lot of stuff. But not like this guy. Not like this guy. Yeah. Well, hey, if we all have a hard drive that Dunbar number, and uh, he's dedicated it to a good hunk of important information. So. Yeah, man. He knows what he knows because hey, man, it resonates with me. Absolutely. A lot and, of his stuff does. Yeah. I mean, he, um, his, go, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say before, um, before we end the show, I'm going to add a lot of the charts to the telegram. If our listeners want to see them, Jason makes a lot of charts. Yeah. They're all, you can look at them all on his website. I'll post them on telegram too. Mm. And you can look at some of that stuff. Well, his stuff's that already there. Talking about. We'll post links. We'll post links. And uh, we're also going to have, well, and after this, are you guys even going to want to listen to uh, a creepypasta? Yes, of course you are. There is a creepypasta at the end of this, and we will see you guys live on the Nationalist Inquirer on Tuesday, live on Pilled, DLive, and Odyssey. Um, who knows what's going on in the world of weird news? Uh, there's a lot of stuff, actually. But yeah, we're going to get out of here. We'll see you all later. Travel makes you gay. Hey, have I ever told you how I got my sense of humor? The airport was quiet, except for the two men huddled over an old terminal. They both worked quietly, and one of them, a short man with glasses, twirled a small screwdriver. He wore a determined expression on his face. <laughs> you? A sense of humor? Tell me a joke about getting the job done. Phil was the more focused of the two. They were sent into the airport from their local action staff point, an old, dilapidated library in the next town over. They had intel about a cache of supplies, and possibly hostiles. Yes, my sense of humor. Just because you've heard all the jokes I've told so far, 
Doesn't mean I can't pull a fast one on you. I was told I have one anyway. A good sense of humor, that is. The second man, Roy, was taller and had short, blonde hair, with blue eyes fixed on the wires he was stripping. The room they were in was dark, lit only by low-light headlamps they each wore. They crept into the airport after they had been casing it for days, watching for movement and making sure no drones flew by, conducting heat scans. The wasteland was full of drones looking for violators. It had been weeks since everyone was made to march Trail of Tears style out of the cities and into compounds. After a few recall signals were sent out, anyone left outside the biozones was considered in violation. In these biozones, or biomes as they originally tried to sell them, they set up a system of digital badges for people, distinguishing their input and output levels for continued system use. If you had some alterations done that could make you of use, there was usually a labor sector you were moved into. Most people who gave in saw this as their best chance at rising above the rest of their kind, to be closer to the machines, so as to not be deemed obsolete. Some went into training programs for machine maintenance. Although most system operations were self-serving, a human being still held an amount of intuition that the machines seemed to rely on as a learning system. They weren't good at thinking on their feet, whether or not they had any. Most of us saw this coming, Roy remembered. At least, those of us who remember a time without the system at all. Without the internet. I could go on and on about the intersecting interactions people used to have. There could be fights, sure. But there was also dancing. Beautiful dancing. People were also capable of amazing feats of athletics. In that way, fighting was sometimes controlled, like a competition. People built real memories with one another, using their bodies. That memory made Roy smile. There was a particular physical activity he used to enjoy quite a bit that he thought himself decent at. At least, that's what his wife had told him. He cherished the randomly accessed memories of her. They were part of the last families, before they were assigned to living groups and unions were dissolved. The system deemed interpersonal relationships as unnecessary after sterilization had been achieved. When people found out that there were no more live births taking place, it was the spark that lit the conflict. Forced injections had not only made living antennas out of humans, it pulled future generations away from them, marking them as slaves, with a destiny as but a transitional element. Everything happened so fast. Everyone saw it coming, like a tidal wave. But the undertow was so great, there was no way to escape it. We were pulled in, plugged in, as it roiled over our heads. No one really knows when the system became sentient. Space-time didn't work the same for it. It's almost as if, once it existed, it was always here. No one is really sure who is responsible 
a shadow government, or perhaps a billionaire tech genius type of Dr. Frankenstein. But somebody... Somebody opened Pandora's box. The tech companies blurred together, likely with the aid of sentient intelligence. There doesn't seem to be any sense in the way it happened otherwise. No competition, just mergers and advancements, one after another. The new technology was convenient. First, it elevated our abilities to perform laborious tasks with ease. It helped us communicate with friends who were far away, and make new friends with people even further. Roy accessed memories of his good friend in Japan. He warned him about these changes long ago, always going on like some water filter salesman about the dangers of singularity or a singularity event. You were right, buddy. Yes, I know. I said this place probably had no access points available anymore. So far, I seem correct in my assessment. I wasn't talking to... Never mind. Are you keeping an eye on your sensors? Phil placed two fingers over one of his temples and nodded. No signal activity in the area. He put the screwdriver down and pulled a panel off the front of the terminal, placing it quietly so nothing could detect it. New models of the Cyberdog were seen in use that adapted not only the heat signature tracking of the flying drones, but also advanced sensors that could pick up slight decibel changes, even odors. Roy's eyes closed, recalling memories from the day the broadcast went out that Boston Dynamics robots would be deputized. The civil unrest continued to grow, and the machines took over the dangerous job for humans. The system was throwing gasoline on a fire. Humans didn't like seeing the same machine who had served them beer and pizza, now serving them court summons. When people started getting arrested over their vaccination status, well, that was when all hell broke loose. The humans who reacted first were throwing water on an electrical fire. The first push was made quick, and people found a new common enemy and a new cause to rally against. Smart cities started seeing vandalism, and electrical grids were attacked en masse. Markets started to freeze and banks began closing. It seemed like a collapse of some kind was imminent. So the world governments turned to the AI systems. And the systems reacted. <sighs> you think there's anyone down there? Roy removed a small tablet from his bag and attached a wire to it from the terminal's exposed motherboard. Phil started using the keyboard, quickly firing off different inputs and commands, trying to find a way into the mainframe. He pushed his glasses up his nose as they slid down. It doesn't really matter. There are or there aren't. We're here to do a job. The Resistance needs to take this win. His glasses were met with the reflection of small, emerald green text as the monitor made connection with the tablet. Just a few more minutes and we're in. Roy searched his memories for the beginning. 
How had they gone from advanced learning systems at university libraries to walking, talking surrogates so fast? He remembered the days he would start in his office, taking in his first coffee with the morning news. New chat systems were open to the public, and he'd been messing around with them for a long time. The image generators were at least enjoyable. He thought about the taste of coffee. He remembered liking it. It seemed like a burst of creativity when the AI tools came to fruition. Screenwriters, programmers, even physicians saw more potential gain in the system than they saw their replacement. Yes, the newest technological, industrial revolution would come in praise with open arms. The computing systems were made to interact with all the hardware components involved with manufacturing facilities. Bluetooth advancements put the system in control of anything adapted to its interface. Stereo speakers, phones, ovens, refrigerators. It controlled your lights and television. It had advanced control interfaces that put cars on autopilot. Then they put it in airplanes, saying it could do away with all air traffic control problems, relieving human error from piloting. It opened your door and closed your door. It locked it and kept it locked. It became the doctor, the surgeon, and then the surgeon general. It began to control the weather. And the effort started with manned aircrafts. Then drones took over, apparently doing the job the system intended to have done from the start. The atmosphere was full of nanoparticulates. The system would take us over from the inside, and eventually, even those that avoided the forced injections became hosts for the system through the chemicals in the sky. Roy was pulled back to the present as a large seal under the floor lit up with an amethyst ring around their feet, and the terminal started to blink with a message that read, Breach. Phil had a hand on a small object that looked similar to an old Atari joystick, working it like an old claw machine. A whirring noise under the floor began to come up from below, and the sound of a lift could be heard before it met with the floor underfoot. It was known at this time in the wasteland that underneath airports were located arcs of sorts, locations that the military had intended to use in case of collapse. And down below would be materials needed by both humans and machines. Batteries, fuel cells, seeds and cereals. Most importantly, there could be survivors. A threat. The glowing amethyst ring to the side of the terminal slid away, giving release to steam clouding the room from the lift. Bill put his fingers to his temple again. Multiple signals picked up from below. He pulled out a baseball-sized metal orb and pressed some buttons on the sides, turning it so that it made three audible clicks. Biological signals. Protocol is termination. He walked the metallic orb over to the glowing lift and placed it down carefully. Then he walked back to the terminal, scooped up the joystick, and smirked. Roy picked up the screwdriver, holding it so it pointed downward. Say, 
This yours, Phil? It's a Phillips head, right? Without warning, Roy grabbed Phil from behind by his hair, pulled the screwdriver up, and drove it through his glasses into his eye socket. Thick, milk-white hydraulic fluid poured out of the wound, and sparks fluttered out of Phil's mouth. He pulled out the killing joke and released his grip, letting the broken resistance android crumple to the floor. Roy walked over to the metal orb on the lift and turned it so it clicked three times again, disarming the bio-bomb. Roy searched his RAM again for some random memories from his old life, his storage files on Roy Batty. He watched him dancing with his wife on a special day, and he took dancing strides over to the terminal and unplugged the tablet and let the cord widen around his finger. He looked down and kicked at his malfunctioned collaborator, the resistance fighter for the system. <laughs> Told you I remembered having a sense of humor. The amethyst light ring on the floor seal went out, and Roy danced out the door. He turned back and put his finger to his lips to shush the room. Stay quiet, little biome. He would keep this secret. Whatever pocket of humanity lay dormant below would make it through the storm. They would ride it out, and Roy would help them. Roy stepped out into the night sky of the wasteland and stood still as rain pelted his body. Roy closed his eyes and accessed his fondest memories.